VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, June the 13th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. You know it. He's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone, give us a shout in the queue and on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Interestingly, it's this time of year that the schools try to pull off their sports day. And one lady this morning emailed me, noting that her child's school, they've postponed it, trying to get it in sometime this week, while other schools are going ahead with their sports day. Yeah, I mean, it might be an opportunity to bundle up and get out and make sure that this happens this school year, but just remarkable, isn't it? 13th of June, we can't find a reasonable day to squeeze in a bit of sports day. Anyway, so on the night that the Denver Nuggets win their first NBA title, 47 years in the league, of course, Canadian Jamal Murray, one of the victors there. On the same night, the Newfoundland Rogues get bounced by the Albany Patroons in the conference final in the basketball league. So they're out. Rogues had a pretty good season, though. I have to say. So too bad for the Rogues, but once again, pretty solid year all in all. And we told you the other day about four athletes from the province who are going to be making their way to Berlin to participate in the 2023 Special Olympics World Summer Games. And of course, they are going to bring down Samantha Walsh, Melvin Hannams, Daniel Moores, and Michael Budden. They'll also be joined by some coaching staff, so I've got those names here as well. Also traveling to Berlin is Chief Medical Officer Neil Cheeseman, Powerlifting Head Coach Jeff Butt, and Assistant Athletics Coach Rosemary Ryan. In addition to that, Andrew Hines, who I've had on this program in the past, Andrew Hines and Lynette Wells are going to be part of the torch run leading up to the opening ceremonies. So terrific honor for them both. They were both supposed to be part of the torch run for the most recent games in Russia that were canceled. So they'll now get a chance to pick up the torch, so to speak, in Berlin. So that's terrific stuff. Andrew Hines is one of only 10 athletes participating and the only one from Canada. So what an honor. Enjoy and good luck. All right. On the other side of the coin, the Special Olympians have a special place in my heart. If you've ever been to an event, you'll know exactly why. On the other side of it, you know, the world of professional sports and the extraordinary, extraordinary amount of money, whether it be for ticket prices or salaries for the players, what have you. This is an interesting one. Do you remember Chicago Cubs second baseman Ryan Sandberg? I mean, he was a beauty ball player. He was inducted to the Hall of Fame in 2005. So he had signed a $25 million contract, and he wasn't playing very well. And as a result, he said, I'm going to retire. And he forfeited almost $16 million of his contract. Players don't do that now. They will ride the pine and collect their paychecks until the contract expires. But he walked away from it. Amazing. Okay. This story is, I don't know, it's sickening. Last year, the province settled a lawsuit with former residents of the youth detention centers in Whitburn and in St. John's, paid about 110 people, so $12.5 million. Jack Whalen was not one. Jack Whalen was 13 years of age in grade 6 when he entered the Whitburn Boys Detention Facility, and he spent 730 days in a solitary confinement cell. I mean, in 2019, the country said solitary confinement will no longer be used, even though we know the criminal justice system has found a way to wiggle around it. There's a variety of different phrases or terms used for what is absolutely segregation and or solitary confinement. But can you imagine, at that age, to be locked up for over two years in a cell about the size of the back of a pickup truck? And so Mr. Whalen has built a replica of that particular cell out in front of the uh, Confederation building yesterday. He's going to bring it around the city. And, you know, inside the cell, he's actually replicated the chalk marks that he used to count the numbers of days he was in. 
in and around 730. So because he wasn't sexually abused, he was physically and psychologically abused, he falls out the outside the statute of limitations. So the monies that was paid out, and rightfully so, he doesn't qualify because of that statute. And here's what it says. Uh, he would have had until his 21st birthday to come forward with a claim or on his 29th birthday if the abuse had been discovered later in life. The province has an act that has granted these exemptions and so that Mr. Whalen does not qualify. But, of course, it's an act that they wrote. They take responsibility. They understand the role. They know they should have done better by Mr. Whalen, who went in the grade six. Four years later, when he left Whitburn, came out still with just grade six. So this is atrocious. Just think about it. Yes, we know when people commit crimes, they need to be punished. But we do know that internationally, solitary confinement has been recognized as cruel and unusual, a form of torture. And now that doesn't pertain back to the 70s when Mr. Whalen was in, in Whitburn. But how can this possibly be? How are we trying to draw the difference between the absolute psychological abuse that Mr. Whalen suffered as a young boy in Whitburn? Just because he wasn't sexually abused, he doesn't qualify for any compensation? So the province wrote the act, and now they're hiding behind it. So that story is really something else. Anyway, he's going to be touring around. We don't know if there's going to be any change. Now his daughter, she went on to be a lawyer, I think because of the issues surrounding her father and his incarceration. And so she's part of the legal team that's trying to get this overturned and allow him to qualify for compensation because the province betrayed him. Anyway, you want to tackle it. We can do it. Scary story here in the city of St. John's yesterday morning, right there on Regatta Plaza, Elizabeth Avenue, a police-involved shooting, as they call it. One civilian is dead. The police officer was sent to hospital injured. We understand that the police officer is going to be okay, but there's a man dead. No details beyond that. We know that they taped off part of Regatta Plaza yesterday. The investigation continues, and it's been handled by the serious incident response team. And as a result, until that's concluded, we probably won't know anything beyond the rumors that are already flying around. But another shooting here in the city just yesterday. Sticking with the criminal justice system for just a moment. So Russell Brown, he's a justice on the Supreme Court of Canada. He's been on, uh, he's been on leave with pay for quite a while now because... He was being investigated for what is allegedly a drunken altercation at a Tony resort in Scottsdale, Arizona. So police were called at the time. They say that Mr. Brown was belligerent and he made some of the women uh, feel uncomfortable and what have you. So because it was reported, the Canadian Judicial Council was looking into what happened. And as a result, Mr. Brown, I suppose, probably knows more about what's going on than I do, of course. He decides to resign. Because of that, the invest investigation comes to an end, and there'll be no public report. So there's already a lot of pretty bizarre takes out there from different corners of the political spectrum about what this means for the Supreme Court of Canada. Thankfully, it hasn't been as partisan as we see in the United States, which has really led to a lot of their so social and legal troubles in that country. But this is a strange story. So... I guess the writing was on the wall. He says, well, I'm not going to go through this. I don't want to have a public report released about what may or may not have happened in Arizona, but a Supreme Court justice has resigned, and I think he's only 59 years of age. Anyway, interesting story. All right, let's keep going. We have been talking about schools on a variety of fronts, and interestingly enough, it was just yesterday afternoon that out on the sidewalk in front of my home ran into a buddy of mine who lives in the neighborhood. He's a high school teacher. So... We were just chatting about the end of the school year, and he's looking forward to be summer holidays and getting out on the Salmon River and all the rest of that stuff. And out of nowhere, he says, 
It's been a pretty good year, but the bane of my existence in the classroom is cell phones. And you can only imagine the high school. It's probably worse than, uh, than other grade levels. He says the amount of time that he's trying to ask students to put away their cell phone and the amount of time that the cell phone has distracted a student, he says it's a full-time job. He spends about as much time on that issue as he does teaching. Then I get up this morning and I read a news story where different schools in different provinces right across the country are talking about banning cell phones in this classroom. So there's a St. Thomas High School in Montreal, Elk Island Public Schools in Sherwood Park, Alberta, a couple of schools in Quebec. I don't know how it's going to work out. And yes, technology can absolutely be utilized in the classroom, but you know full well. I mean, even if a, 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 a plate of uh, adults at a dinner party, it's hard to keep your eyes out of your phone. And we all know inside the country's youth, they really do spend a lot of time on their phone. And screen time has its own problems. But in the classroom, you know full well the distraction that it provides has got to be a real nuisance for the teacher. So with the end of the school year coming and opportunities to review what happened this school year, is there any opportunity to deal with the cell phone issue? Because just imagine if a high school teacher with all the other concerns going on K-12 says his number one problem, the bane of his existence, is cell phones in the classroom. Now, folks who think that's a bad idea will talk about it's a lifeline regarding their own personal safety. But if you're in school and a child needs to connect with their parents, surely the teacher and the administrators are going to allow that to happen if the child feels like they're at, at risk or they're in danger or something like that. And if the parents need to uh, touch base with their child, certainly they could just call the school. So I get the argument, but I do know full well that those cell phones are not helping in schools. What do you think? And school, we can talk about school. Uh, on that front, I want to say congratulations to an 18-year-old uh, Cornerbrook student named Claire Coleman. She's received the TD Scholarship for Community Leadership, 95 average in high school. She started a not-for-profit organization called Game Changers, holds fundraisers, other events to support local causes. She's going to Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario to study health science. And this scholarship is going to pay for her tuition, room, board, and summer employment. So there's also good news coming out of the schools if you want to share some of that good news with us this morning. Let's do exactly that. All right, this is a heavy towny issue, but this is a big one. Walking around in the downtown core, you know, it should be the most vibrant part of the city, like it is in most cities across the country. But between the graffiti, which is unbelievable, and the litter, which is always going to be a problem downtown and other parts of the city and province, it's the street-level vacancy rate. Now, if you just simply walk and you're not familiar with how many businesses have come and gone, which is, uh, always happens, and there's some seasonal opportunities for people to take up some storefront. The vacancy rate down there is somewhere around 30%, which is a big, big number. If you look at that comparatively to other major cities in Atlanta, Canada, for instance, I had the numbers here. In Halifax, it was about 18. I had that jotted down here somewhere. Uh, Halifax was around 18. Fredericton, also about 18. So we have a problem. Some of the buildings have been empty for a long time, whether it be the old CBC building, the telephone company building, and yes, some of the street level that are vacant will indeed have tenants above, but when you talk about curb appeal and how the city presents, now the city council and the mayor say there's not much they can do about it because it's a privately owned operation. There is also some reference to how many businesses have closed since the beginning of the pandemic, and the Downtown St. John's Business Commission puts together a, uh, an index talking about the businesses that, that are in the downtown core, they say that if 40 new businesses have opened since they last published their brochure, there's still some 10 or 13 of these street fronts that have not seen a new business move in. But look, I love this city. 
and for the most part, really proud of the city. But things like that are not a good look, and I don't know who's, we can't really blame anyone in particular, I don't suppose, but it does speak to the future of some of these commercial real estate properties, whether it be the advent of remote work and or some of the big tenants, whether it be the Hibernian Management Company or ExxonMobil or the school district that had moved out, taking hundreds of people away who would absolutely be part of the support network for downtown business. But the vacancy rate seems to be a problem. I'm told it's not, but certainly when walking down Water Street, you got to feel it's some sort of problem. How are we doing on the telephone there, David? Okay. So let's check in in PEI where the Atlantic Premiers are meeting. And, you know, th the impact of the clean fuel regulations that are going to be implemented on the 1st of July is a curious conversation, probably mostly because we can't get a firm number from the federal government about exactly what the impact will be. Yes, we've had comments come from the uh, Parliamentary Budget Office talking about 17 cents a litre by 2030 in addition to 37 cents of already carbon tax implications on fuels. But when the minister responsible, in this case Stephen Gibo, can't give anyone a straight answer about what exactly is the price tag. We've seen estimations that with the full implementation of the clean fuel regulations, that'll see about a 1% decrease in our provincial GDP by the time we roll into 2030. That's significant. The impact on households with the price of fuels, home heating, uh, gasoline, diesel, what have you, it's very real. You would think that a policy created at the federal government level would have some sort of number that they can share with us. And so as the Atlantic Premiers ask for a delay in the implementation, to not have anything concrete coming from the federal government to either justify or to elaborate on or to give firm numbers about what it means is outrageous. And it doesn't make you a so-called climate change denier to realize the impact it's going to have on economies that are trying to recover. You know, Premier King and PEI talking about exactly that, as are Houston and, oh, in New Brunswick, that's, what's that man's name? Uh, Blair, Mr. Higgs, Premier Higgs. So we have a unique situation in this part of the country. We really just absolutely do. So please, federal government, if you're going to do it, well, at least give us an idea of what it's actually going to mean, as opposed to all different schools of thought from the Canadian Tax Federation, the PBO, the federal governor half-mute, and then the premiers still, to a man, don't really know exactly what the implications will be. Also, interestingly, talking about the Atlantic Physicians Registry, which absolutely could be helpful, removes all the barriers for doctors to be able to move anywhere in Atlantic Canada, set up shop right away, get down to work, fill out a patient roster, or be a specialist, whatever the case may be. They're talking about the potential to expand that registry to other healthcare professionals which would al already be uh, a problem in, these, in our provinces, but should and could be very helpful as well. So I don't know what the stumbling block would be there. Surely there might be nurses or nurse practitioners or licensed practical nurses or radiation or respiratory therapists that would be more than happy to spend a summer in Charlottetown, more than happy to spend a summer somewhere in this province and do what they do for a living with the normal training and accreditation and license that they already have. So we can take that on. And quick one, this is a good w story, I, I suppose. So there was a group of search and rescue professionals. They congregated in the Cornerbrook's Margaret Ballwater Park yesterday, celebrating the team's 40th anniversary. So some of the professionals in the search and rescue world, they met with some folks that they had rescued in the past. So obviously with the busy life, and they conduct the rescue, and they move on to the next uh, level, whether it be the ambulance to bring it to the hospital or what have you, of course they don't get a chance to really spend any time with the folks they've rescued, and vice versa. So you can only imagine the powerful stories of being thankful and grateful, and yes, just to make that connection beyond some of the very daring rescues that we see, 
and I'll also add to the search and rescue uh, conversation, is it's fine for the liberals at their policy convention to adopt a policy that says they will indeed implement full-time, 365, 24-7 search and rescue capacity in Labrador. Let's see if that policy convention uh, that was adapted or adopted to be actually put into, par- into practice because they're not the, t- the same things. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. And, yes, whether you want to talk about what's next after David Johnson has resigned or stepped down from his post or the fact that they've landed some 23% of the total allowable catch of snow crab this year, the ASP says it's going pretty well. I don't think the harvesters are green full. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. I just saw it out of the corner of my eye before we went to the end of the preamble. We were talking basketball, whether it be the Nuggets or the Rogues, of course. Congratulations to Sarah Reed. She's a six-foot shooting guard from St. John's. She plays at Gon- and attends Gonzaga High School here in the city. She's been named to the 12-woman roster for FIBA under-16 women's uh, team, national team, to compete in the America's Championship coming up soon. So way to go, Sarah Reed, one of 12 women representing the country in the U-16s. That's brilliant stuff. Okay, let's begin this morning where let's go to line number five. Colin, you're on the air. Colin, line five. Oh, good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you? Okay, you. Good, thanks. I want to talk about the uh, story that just came out of the news there this morning about Bernie Doyle, uh, a man uh, who was uh, wrongly convicted of manslaughter in in relation to his uh, stepson. Uh, a tra- travesty of justice. It's just uh, no other way to describe what happened to him. I think it, uh, the case against him hinged on uh, forensic pathology evidence that uh, was tendered at his trial, and he uh, was found guilty based on uh, the shaken baby syndrome. When in fact, what uh, happened? was that he was dancing with his 17-month infant in his arms, tripped over some tools, and fell. And Tyler's, I think that's the child's name, the baby's head struck the edge of one of the tools and later died in the hospital. He was sentenced for four years and served his entire sentence. Unbelievable. Yeah, it, yeah it's, just, it's just amazing. It's just uh, unbelievable, you know, how, how, how quickly a, an event or a series of events can just ruin your life, pretty much. And... Uh, to be to be put on trial for for the for the uh, manslaughter in the death of a, of, a, of an infant, you know, a young boy, um, and to be convicted and know that you're innocent and uh, be sentenced to four years in prison and did the whole four years, and now when you get out, of course, you have a criminal record uh, for criminal homicide, which is uh, you know extremely serious, but it's for a child. So if you, you know, down the road, if you uh, have children of your own, uh, there could be uh, serious legal implications for that, for child custody and uh, visitation uh, parameters surrounding that. You know, uh, family courts, uh, family law courts, they use uh, convictions like that to uh, decide custody issues. Uh, Employment, travel, educational opportunities. So pretty much your your life is, uh, has been radically changed, and uh, you don't get that time back, right? Add to it, he lost a child. Yeah. You know, it's one thing for the travesty in the courts, but the man lost a child. There's also the mention of the uh, pathologist that did the autopsy, uh, Charles Smith. 
He's been reprimanded in the province of Ontario. He's done a bunch of autopsies that led to criminal charges and convictions, many of which were, had been under review, and some of those have been overturned. So he's a disgraced pathologist, and he played an active role in seeing this gentleman convicted, Mr. Doyle. Yeah, it's and and, uh, and other people in that province, and and not only in that province. So we've we had the same problem uh, in this province with the case of uh, Ron Dalton. Uh, he was convicted of murdering his wife, you know, and that uh, case also hinged on forensic uh, pathology evidence that uh, came out that she had been manually strangled when uh, she choked on uh, a food uh, bolus, and uh, he, he he was convicted of murder, and he spent the better part of a decade behind bars. I think this whole uh, review of forensic pathology and medical evidence in in the uh, in the criminal trial context. I think it really has to be reviewed uh, right across this country, not just province by province. Um, it, it's just it, it just uh, it's, I find it astounding that people can be convicted of uh, very serious crimes and 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 what comes out uh, 10, 15, 20 years later in a lot of cases that's uh, based on shoddy. Um, autopsy uh, results and uh, the inferences, you know, the, the factual inferences that are drawn from this evidence. It, it's just, leaves me scratching my head. I, I'm just... Well, they actually had a public inquiry in Ontario over well over a decade, maybe 15 years ago, about exactly this, shaken baby syndrome, the autopsies, just to see whether or not anyone was wrongfully convicted. And in jury trials, no question, part of human nature is if someone has been introduced and deemed an expert by the court, that carries enormous weight. It simply does. Now, of course, throughout the pandemic here now, I think people have a different view of what the merit or veracity of an expert tag gets you. But certainly in the court, if you have a doctor who's got some sort of resume and the courthouse says, yes, this person is an expert in their field, that testimony carries a lot of weight. And unfortunately, some of these experts like Dr. Smith are the furthest thing from, and their work has not even been shoddy, but has seen people incarcerated because of what their expert tag carried so far as evidence in a courtroom. It's, it's just amazing stuff, really. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, what I call it. I call it a case of uh, uh, retrospective analysis. Basically, you're looking at the result, you know, and at, at, in the... Uh, uh, at the autopsy examination, you're looking at the, these particular hemorrhages and uh, maybe a detached retina and uh, brain swelling and all this sort of stuff. And then you're going from that to try to, in retrospect, say what happened, you know, 24 hours or 48 hours before to justify the result that you're looking at on the autopsy table. You know, and this is where the problem, uh, a lot of the problem, I think, is grounded is that you're, you're not looking at evidence and, and then drawing a fact. You're looking at facts and then trying to, in retrospect, piece, you know, make it fit some, some theory that you have in retrospect. And this, this is where the problem occurs, I think. And it's, um, you know, you, you can say, uh, uh, you know, critics of what I'm saying would say, well, okay, the defense, they can call uh, their experts too, but you're, you're quite right. That when a jury of twelve people who have no medical training or no forensics, uh, you know, t uh, training, uh, they hear an expert get on with all these medical terms, and uh, I, I think they're just getting overwhelmed, and they just uh, go into a jury room uh, if it's a if it's a jury trial, and they say, "Yeah, he's guilty," or "She's guilty," you know. They they just become so mesmerized, I think, by 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 the evidence, they just get overwhelmed, and uh, I don't think there's any really. Uh, critical thinking 
that goes on to to to, to arrive at the facts to say I, I have to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. Not only that the that crime that the that the the charge is made out, but that the crime was committed. In a lot of uh, criminal homicide cases, it's it's quite obvious that uh, somebody has been uh, killed through an unlawful act. You know, somebody got shot in the in the head. Uh, somebody got stabbed. You know, twenty times. And obviously, the person didn't the, the deceased didn't do that to themselves, so somebody else did it, you know. And it, it was and it's criminal in nature. But a lot of this stuff is it's just it's astounding that that people get put through a criminal process and they end up getting convicted. And in many cases, like like this gentleman, now four years uh, of his life was spent in a in a in the penitentiary that he will not get back, and then getting out and being labeled a child killer for the rest of your life. Yeah, until Innocence Canada takes over. But for some people, he'll always be that, a child killer. You mentioned critical thinking. I would imagine jurors think the critical thinking has been done for them by the expert percentage, right? So I, I get the point, but I think that's the weight that's, uh, you know, you will be given different weight to different testimony come from different people. You know, it's one thing to be a witness or have some relation to the accused or the defendant. There will also be uh, a different weight given to someone who is a medical doctor who's been called an expert, and they'll tell you that he's testified in, oh, 200 trials or whatever the case may be, and he's done autopsies in 220 cases of shaken baby syndrome or what have you. That just would be overwhelming, I think, as a juror to try to sift through. I appreciate the time this morning, Colin. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. Yeah, it's one thing to talk about the fact that he spent four years behind bars for a crime he did not commit, but can't lose sight of the fact that he also lost a baby, a 17-month-old infant, because of an accident. You don't think, on top of being wrongfully convicted, that that's not going to haunt him for the rest of his life, that he tripped on some tools, and as a result, his baby is dead? You know, one minute you're dancing with your baby in the arm, in your arms, next minute the child is dead. Oh, man. So someone, uh, actually uh, several people, have been asking me to see if we can't find out some information from DFO, which is tricky business at the best of times. And it's always hard to understand why they hold their cards so close to their vest when things like announcing different fishing seasons. And in this case, people are asking about the recreational food fishery. Last year, uh, there was 39 days, probably going to be about the same this year. There was no requirement for licenses or tags. It opened up on Saturday, the 2nd of July, very similar to the year before. So some people really do want to try to make some plans around that. I get it. You know, for some, it's just a great opportunity to get on the water. For others who are struggling with the cost of living or what have you, this will be an opportunity to put some cod in their freezer or their fridge. On top of that, just what is the delay? Why does DFO do this? And this is every single year. So if it opened on the 2nd of July, and here we are on the 13th of June, I can't remember the date we actually found out the announcement last year, but it was certainly pretty close, too. Anyway, let's go and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Yesterday we were talking about a new 9-meter-high dome-shaped greenhouse out in the city of Cornerbrook, or close by Cornerbrook. It was put there by the Western Environment Center. Join us on line number, line number one is the executive director of that center. That's Katie Temple. Good morning, Katie. You're on the air. Good morning. I it, Welcome to the show, first off. Thank you very much. I admit to knowing very little to nothing about greenhouse and or hydroponic technology, but I do frequently say that it would be a wise idea to deal with food security and insecurity and proximity too if we peppered the entire province with greenhouses. So bravo for what you've done out in Cornerbrook. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, it's been an interesting project for sure. How did it come to bear? 
Well, we're an organization that really focuses on community food programming. Our, our main mandate is environmental education. And so we do that in, in a number of ways. And one of them is through our community food programs. Uh, so we run five community gardens already here in the city and we have community composting programs. We have a fruit rescue program. So we, you know, for the past, um, you know, seven to 10 years, we've been running these programs. We've partnered with a few organizations, including the city of Cornerbrook, and we felt like, you know, the past year or so, we said, why don't we try to do something a little bit bigger? And so we found out about these amazing year-round, passive, uh, off-the-grid dome greenhouses, and we were able to get some funding through the federal government, and we were able to um, to get it started, uh, yeah, just a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, so it started with, you know, a good foundation of community food programming and then just expanded from there. You know, we have a lot of different partners in the community um, and we all felt like it was a, a good next step. And I, I personally am a gardener. I have my own greenhouse and I realized that growing in a greenhouse can really be a game changer for, for growing food. Uh, we live in a place that has a fairly short growing season. You know, we have a lot of wind and just having a little bit of shelter and slightly hot temperatures can really make a huge difference to what you can grow. Yeah, no question. So was there a specific pot of money, whether it be provincially or federally, that the support came from? Yeah, so multiple sources. Um, the main uh, source was the local food infrastructure fund. So that's the federal government, Agriculture Canada, supports uh, various local food projects across the country. And then the city of Cornerbrook uh, contributed as well. And we have some other partners on this particular project. So the Association for New Canadians and Vine Place Community Centre. Uh, so we're really trying to make this greenhouse project open to multiple different groups, you know, across the diversity of our society, different populations. Uh, we're really trying to show that growing food at the community level is a really important part of food sustainability. So, of course, we need to depend on, you know, commercial agriculture. We really need our farmers of all sizes. Uh, but growing food within our communities um, is also really critical if we're going to, you know, be able to feed ourselves and, and become more resilient overall. And the province with the fewest farms of any province in the country, which is a real complicating factor here. You mentioned community gardens. You know, municipalities are basically copying and pasting documents regarding you know, homesteading or backyard farming in their municipalities from a pre-Confederation document. What's the role of municipalities here? I know it's going to be different between how you can set up shop in your backyard in St. John's versus a more rural, remote part of the province where you have some more space and don't have the population density. But I think municipalities have to play a bigger role. Your thoughts? Yes, for sure. And, of course, you know, it's going to vary from, from place to place. But it's all about priorities. You know, if we say we do want to prioritize growing food ourselves, uh, reducing our reliance on food imports and, and becoming more resilient and having access to uh, local food that's more fresh, more healthy. You know, it's not just the fact that it's coming from far away, which makes it, you know, riskier and, and makes us more vulnerable, but it's also the fact that it's healthier. You know, if we grow it here, it's fresher. And so 
if we make that a priority, um, then we can, you know, look at our municipal bylaws through that lens and say, how can we make this happen uh, and create some guidelines across the board to make sure that it is done properly and, and done respectfully. Because so I think municipalities actually have a yeah a huge role to play. I, I really do think so because you know whether it be not just the issues we're dealing with today with food inflation cost of living pressures, but people can do it as a hobby. It can actually be part of community building. If my homestead and your backyard farm, I trade a bit of my stuff, a bit of your stuff. Next thing you know, we've got a bit more of a community spirit, and all the while growing healthier, more nutritional food close by where you live. Because proximity is a massive issue for communities, for instance, that don't even have a grocery store, and there's tons of those. Uh, before we let you go, let's get back into the greenhouse. What are you going to grow? What's going to happen inside? Well, we're going to be renting out space to community groups. Uh, so right now, we actually just have the exterior finished. So we still need to build all the beds inside. And we'll rent out community groups, and they can essentially grow what they would like. And so the sky's the limit, really, um, inside, because the climate is going to be much, much different than outside. So we'll be able to experiment with 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 a bunch of different different things. Um, like I said, the Association for New Canadians is also a partner. So we're hoping that some new Canadians can even experiment with a few different uh, vegetables and fruits from their home countries, demonstrate how to grow those. Um, so yeah, we're we're going to grow a whole range of things, and we can't wait to be able to give some tours as well. So we're hoping once it's all set up. We can arrange to have school groups, any kind of community groups um, come through, and we can demonstrate all the really unique aspects of, of the building itself and, and what we're growing in there. Any idea what kind of yield you can get from a, a greenhouse of this size? But I guess it all depends on how long it takes to produce one crop or another, I guess. For sure, and a big part of it is soil f- fertility as well. So we really um, need to make sure that the soil that we have in there is really healthy, that it's really thriving, and so that will really determine um, the the yield that we get. We'll also try to maximize space. So, you know, we can use the vertical space. You mentioned this nine meter high, so we have a lot of vertical space, so we can grow things up on trellises. Um, you know, vining plants can, can use the the space up there so so yeah i i'd love to um to fill the whole space and have it a, a big oasis of green um there in the it's, it's in a parking lot actually uh right across from the mill it's in a really unique location um because we're demonstrating how much you can grow in a somewhat urban setting um so it'll be an oasis of green I thought that was a unique facet of this. Of course, uh, Carterbrook Pulp and Paper, they own the lot. They've leased it for uh, $1. Good on them for doing that. But it's the placement that you also think has has an issue regarding how important it is for people to be able to see it. Why? Exactly. Yeah, well, we really wanted to to make it visible um, because we wanted to inspire people. We wanted to really bring the conversation about food sustainability out in the open there's been so many conversations already, um, and and it's all been really positive. The feedback is really positive, and I think we need to have these community conversations. You know, we really need to continue um, the conversation about how we bring food growing back home. You know, whether it's people in their own backyards. Um, you know, you mentioned the social aspect of it, which I think is super important. You know, there's a growing a growing community of of backyard farmers and homesteaders in Newfoundland. And so whether you're growing, you know, as a family, individually, community level, 
um, I think those are essential conversations that we we really need to have to improve, um, you know, food security and food sustainability here in our province. And not all greenhouses are necessarily built for the potential winter conditions we get here, but this one seems to be. So a couple of meters worth of snow can handle on the roof itself. There's sustained winds of 200 kilometers an hour, so it seems like it's built for the test of the weather time. Uh, anything else you'd like to offer this morning, Katie, while we have you? Yeah, well, I just want to um, emphasize the, you know, the importance of growing local, uh, whether people, you know, have a few containers, whether they forage a little bit, you know, I feel like growing food, you know, uh, foraging for food, it's a part of Newfoundland culture, you know, it's a part of our heritage and our traditions. And so I don't think it's too far-fetched to think that, you know, maybe in an, another few years, maybe in another generation, we will um, really be able to achieve a much higher level of food security than, than where we're at right now. So everyone can play a part. Absolutely. Fingers crossed we get to exactly as you the place you described. So if you want to find out more about the Western Environment Centre, the website's a pretty simple one. It's wecnl.ca for all the info, who they are, what they do, and they've been around since 1998. Really appreciate the time this morning, Katie. Thanks a lot. Yes, thanks for having me. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Katie Temple, Executive Director of the Western Environment Centre. Let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Harvey, you're on the air. Good morning, Petty. How are you this morning? Excellent today. Thank you. How about you? Oh, not bad by any veteran just has to be too good. At least we got no fires. Not yet in this part of the province. And once again, another fingers crossed that the wildfire season isn't too bad here this year. No, so far so good, old buddy. Yes, I'm calling Petty Boy. Uh, uh, have seen me get about this rebate or something for the groceries. So I was wondering now, like, uh, how much would a senior citizen receive for a month, one-time payment? It, it depends. Are you single or married? Single. So a single senior with no children, two hundred and thirty-four dollars, yeah. or no dependent children. Two thirty-four. Yeah. Right on, boy. Well, I tell you, you need that much, buddy. More and more besides, boy. Everything's so expensive, isn't it? Oh, it's unbelievable. You know, I I do the grocery shopping for the most part of my house. And yeah. it's just remarkable. You got a little bag. You got a bag with the bottom barely covered. Sixty bucks. You know, you don't I get a hundred much for a hundred dollar bill. I guarantee you that. I tell you, I picked up two hundred and fifty dollars through there the last Friday, and my son, I can't see what I got for it. Yeah, no, it, it's it really is shocking. The price of everything, and you'll also notice it's the size of certain products that have shrunk, even though the cost has ex- has exploded upwards. So. Yeah, it's tricky stuff. Just so folks know, uh, just open up the payment details for the one-time uh, rebate, or the yeah. grocery rebate, they like to call it. And people yeah. should have had it by the 5th of this month. So, That's or the 5th of July, pardon me, it's going to be out, rolled out. Yeah. $234 yeah. if you're single, no children. 387 with one child. 467 okay. two children. Up to 548 mm. if you have three children. And 628 with four children. Very similar numbers if you're married. $306 right. with zero children. And then the same right. 387 467 Seven five forty eight and six twenty eight. There you go. So what I received now about two thirty four, right? Yes, sir. Right on. Why don't you take it easy and thank thank you for your time, buddy. My pleasure, Harvey. Take care of yourself. You keep it up while you're doing a wonderful job. I appreciate it. Thank you. No, you're welcome. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's go to take a break. When we come back, Mud Lake, and then talk about some hospital conditions. Also going to be uh, an issue regarding uh, the body safety program that is going to be in form, implemented in the province in the form of a pilot project. Questions surrounding that are interesting because the answers are 
really not all that sensible. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Penny. I want to start with um, with informing the public that the Rotary Club of Waterford Valley is hosting their sixth annual car show, not this Saturday, but the following Saturday, with a rain date for the Sunday. That's going to go from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Classic cars, modern cars, even electric vehicles. Um, RNC officer is going to be there with his cruiser and uh, for the adults and kids to see. We're going to have some bouncy castles and cotton candy hot dogs. 50-50 is all the, good, all the fun, so we're, uh, there's still spaces for, uh, for vehicles if car owners want to want to get in, and they can go to uh, fa- on Facebook, Waterford Valley Rotary, for more information. If I'm not mistaken, there was a few charges laid up the shore, wasn't there, with their annual car show? Did you say charges? Yeah, there were some, well, violations of the Highway Traffic Act, not necessarily criminal charges, yeah. No, I didn't hear that. No, I did not hear that. But anyway, so good luck with that. Hopefully, none at ours, hopefully. So not this Saturday, but the following Saturday. Fair enough. So we want to respond. You you, you did an, an exceptional job last Thursday uh, speaking with Minister Haggie, and you really didn't give him a lot of quarter, which we really appreciate, and I know the children of Newfoundland and Labrador appreciate You know, he, he you, and I, you and him spoke about the Kids and No Body Safety Program last week, and it seems like there's there's misinformation. So we we and we ran into that, uh, you, you know, with the announcement that NLASD was being rolled into Department of Education, we made the apparently incorrect assumption that we should start dealing with uh, with Department of Education to push this program because the minister wasn't even aware of it. But in 2020, January 2020, NLASD made the decision after reviewing the program to implement it province-wide in the schools. And even in our meeting a few weeks ago, he wasn't aware of that and. He seems to be, again, taking the advice of his of his advisors. And um, cause, you know, when we first started meeting with Department of Education over a year ago, they said there was body safety program in schools, which Minister Haggy has has talked about. And um, and so we said, well, let's see the pro- let's see the let's see what's in the schools, which they gave to us. And and although there is there's certain components of of uh, you know, certain components of a body safety program. It is not a body safety program. And to get into the details of it, it you know, we, we're, the social emotional learning, which is, which is a really great uh, change in, in, uh, in, in outcomes that they've introduced, helps students manage their emotions, have empathy, problem solve, make responsible decisions, and maintain healthy relationships, which is really important. And, and, and it does get into it does get into the fact that in grade two, it gets in fact into naming body parts as opposed to a body safety program, which is what we're advocating for, which focuses on child abuse, sexual exploitation, luring, trafficking, cyberbullying, overall personal safety of children and keeping children safe online and offline. So, you know, so, you know, over a year ago, you know, they maintained that was the case. And then in a meeting a couple of weeks ago, the minister wasn't aware that NASD had reviewed the program and was implementing it in the schools. And he seems to have continued to repeat that last Thursday. So a couple of things that he said was he said that the program was not in all jurisdictions. And and I think the, mis, the misinterpretation or the, maybe the specific thought he's having is that it's not implemented province-wide in every jurisdiction and, and and that's true every jurisdiction actually does have kids and no in its programs but some 
some provinces have multiple school boards. You know, they have Catholic school boards and, and they have private school boards. And, and so it's not in every school board. Uh, however, every province does have it implemented. You can go on the, the Center for Child Protection. You can see that all provinces and territories do have the program in their schools, but not necessarily every school. But Nova Scotia and New Brunswick actually has it province-wide, as does the Yukon. The minister also took exception to the uh, price tag quote of $25,000, saying that that was simply for the implementation of the program, not for the training of the teachers required, and made reference to professional development days. Surely with the calendar of professional development days that are already on tap, one of them could be for this. I mean, if we're talking about the importance of, you know, there's got to be training ongoing and updated training for uh, the provinces teachers. I get it. Some people complain that there's too many of them. But regardless of how many there are, if we're talking about the issues of importance, this one has got to be really near the top. So whatever's scheduled for next year, one of those days can surely be for this. You know, when when you go public with some of this, and we, we you know, we've been working behind the scenes and, you know, with NLASD and, and, and we were actually making great progress, obviously, um, but now, as soon as you go public, you get the floodgates open. You know, we, we have teachers reaching out to us saying, you know, there's nothing in the schools. We had an individual who's actually involved in in the actual uh, delivery and, you know, on a higher level saying that there's no outcomes in the school related to, in the school curriculum related to uh, body safety. And, you know, you, 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 just, you just realize that. And, and another parent sends, you know, reaches out and says, well, you know, one of the PD days, accidentally, the principal sent to the parents what the teachers will be doing, and it was uh, it was yoga, two-hour lunch, and booster juice. You know, and, and the thing is, what we realize is that the minister only knows what the minister is told, and uh, obviously, he's not the one on the ground trying to implement this. And and on some level, we we feel sympathy for him because we know that you know it's a challenging thing trying to push rope uphill sometimes, which which probably is what he's trying to do. But but what he needs to realize is that NLESD had already decided to do this, and he doesn't need to be put in the position that he's putting himself in, where he's he's somehow making it seem like he has to decide to do it. Well, the decision's already made. What he needs to do is now expedite it and tell his official Department of Education slash NLESD, which which I think half the problem here is is this merger, perhaps. But 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 you know, I was I was actually at a school yesterday doing laser tag with kindergarten, grade one and grade twos. And, and I was looking into their little eyes. And, and once you start thinking about it this way, you, you start you start realizing that a certain percentage of those children are either being abused right now or will be in the future. And, and, and in good conscience, I just, you know, and the summer's coming, you know, in good conscience, I just don't see how we don't move heaven and earth to make this happen. You know, the other thing that's come forward is, you know, my wife has passed along to me a few people like, you know, that have just disclosed just over the weekend, like almost every day there's people, you know, confirming these beliefs that we're, that we're saying that we're putting out publicly, but a victim who, who was abused for 10 years by an older family friend, another child that was sexually abused by their biological father, and the mother clearly said education would have helped her child come forward. You know, we, and we also understand, you know, summer's coming, but, you know, we just keep emphasizing the fact that there were so many children who are dreading summer because that's two months of not having school as their safe haven, which which my wife continued to say how she dreaded weekends, Easter's, Christmas's, summer because school was her safe haven. That was the place where she felt protected, and it was also a place that could have educated her. So, you know, over again, we're calling for uh, NLASD because they still, they according to the minister, they still seem to be in charge of doing this to speed this process up. And maybe it can't happen in September, but the Center for Child Protection, which which 
developed and implements this, helps develop, implement this program, says, says we can do it, like, let's do it in October if we need time. Let's do it in November, December. When they started this pilot, they started in January of 22. So that means it can be put in midstream. Uh, you know, it, we, we want to keep keep the pressure here because, again, this is not bureaucracy. Bureaucracy shouldn't be in the way of this. Like, we, we've already decided to do this. And and if it is implemented, you know, province-wide in Nova Scotia since 2009, you know, it, it baffles the mind and it and it's heartbreaking when you boil it down to the fact that so many hundreds or thousands of children are being abused and, and are suffering the lowering. I mean, this case is a 14-year-old. You know, this is what our children are facing, you know, when it gets public. But there's so many things we don't know about that these children carry till they're adults like my wife did. She was in her 30s before she could even talk about it. And uh, so, again, we just want to call on the people who have the power to do something about it to make it happen. Yeah, I mean, it's a politically charged climate. And I think there, in some people's minds will be an overlap regarding other issues regarding sexual education and all the other issues that are making their way through social media channels and, ac- and actually have made their way to this program. But this one, I mean, I've seen it. I've looked at what, where it's uh, been implemented and the reviews about how they think it's making things safer for children. It's not a lefty piece of uh, 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 curriculum. It's not a righty piece. It's not a dipper. It's not socialism. It's not communism. It's not Marxism. It's not all those things. It's something very pragmatic and looks like it could be very helpful. And you're right. It doesn't have to be September. But a plan to move beyond just deeming it a pilot program to some sort of time frame where we'll see full implementation. And yes, if the price tag is $25,000, that's peanuts when we're talking about the safety for children and all the warning signs, where to go and what to do if and when you recognize them. So anyway, I, I think this has got to happen. We're happy to talk about it here on the show. Appreciate the time, Tom. We're off to the news. Take care. Thank take you. You too. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, patience uh, for those folks in the queue. We'll talk with you, and then we're going to be speaking with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this hour on line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Hi, Patrick. How are you this morning, sir? Not too bad, thanks. How you doing? Not bad. Top shelf, as you would say. Love it. <laughs> uh, uh, I want to speak on motor vehicles. Well, the government watering down services and putting it all online is is the basics behind a lot of or the gist of what I want to say. I uh, I'm trying to change my address. Okay, so I went in online last night in on my golf and all that stuff. And uh, anyway, I never had a document like a light bill or something for my new address. So I couldn't attach anything. So it said if I didn't have anything like that, as I read down into it, contact motor vehicle. So I went in there this morning and, uh, you know, I just moved into a new house. It was about a new house. And uh, I'm trying to get my license changed. So they couldn't do it because I never had no proof of anything, uh, which is understandable. That's okay. But when I was in the motor vehicle, the services are so watered down and they're so less people working in there you're in there for hours on end the weight is unbelievable and then when you get to the wicket they can't help you the girl couldn't help me this morning i had to get a piece of paper from her go over to the east end get a basically an affidavit signed saying that i live there from somebody and everything else so i and i need my address changed so i can get everything else changed because i need proof at the bank where i live you know and things like that services with government are so watered down that anybody that doesn't do things online 
is sort of handcuffed, uh, you know, sort of thrown to to the side. Because uh, to be honest with you, I don't own a laptop, and I don't like doing things online. But that is the world today, and I have to accept it. I know that. But government services should be a little bit more easier to navigate. I'm uh, I'm 50 plus, and uh, you know I'm in that borderline where sort of. Uh, you know, I know online, I don't know online, or on that borderline, and it's not right because a lot of us don't want to do things online, and we don't have the option or the capabilities to do things online. And I'd like for this to go back to the old school, but it's not going to, where we actually speak to human beings, where an actual person can get in front of us and assist us. Like they're getting paid to do, but they don't get paid to do that anymore. <laughs> it's, it's unreal. Yeah, the way counter service once was conducted is going to change. There's no doubt about that. So just to be clear, did you were you able to get your issue satisfied at the wicket? I'm right now in the process of going back there. I went in there this morning. Now I live in the center of the city, so I had to go to Mount Pearl. Then the girl gave me the forms. I went over to the East End because I had to get my partner to sign them. So she signed them. Now I'm heading back into motor vehicle. Now I drive a pickup truck. So this is a $40 bill for me today, at least, okay, to do this running around. And that. So I'm getting it done. I'm heading back there now. I'm going to see where it goes from there. It should be okay because I, I filled out the form correctly. I know that. And I had to, my uh, partner sign it in the correct place. But this is a little bit too much uh, to be put on the people, especially people like myself that are, are, we'll say, past 50, okay? We don't want to do things online. We want people to talk to. We want people. These are jobs that, that are there because we are looking for people to actually speak, but nobody is getting hired to speak and give a, a, a voice to anything anymore. It's a computer world. I don't like it. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, if you have to do something very fundamental to do, like to renew your registration, and of course we're not going to get stickers any longer now, just simply going to get a piece of paper for in our glove box. So what was the form that you had to fill out? Was it from a it, real estate company or to prove that you had purchased a new property, or what kind of form did they give you? It's a form. Basically, it's a, it's a sort of an affidavit form that somebody has to sign and guarantor has to sign to prove that I'm at that address. Okay. So I, I basically got my partner. She, she signed it. She is ponying up for me and saying, yes, you know, uh, Todd lives at this address. And now I'm on the way back in with that form. <laughs> and you know something else? I can't get my new license in there. They, they have no system anymore of printing off the new license to pass it to you. I have to go in with this form now and I wait 10 days for my new license to come in the mail. <laughs> yeah, since they added the additional security features, we haven't been printing licenses here for a while now. Yeah. I think yeah. it might be in Quebec, same place we get our passports printed. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's Why right. can't we do that stuff here? You know, that's a job for somebody. That's employment for somebody. That, that's, that's, and employment is our economy. It, it all goes around. And that, you know, but anyway, I'm not managing the province. <laughs> yeah, and look, I think everything that we could be doing here, we should be doing here. I think on that front, there are companies that get actually accredited by the government to print things that have security features, passports, licenses, and the like. I think that's how that works. Now, 
That doesn't mean that we couldn't have a company that was developed here in this province to go through the process to be accredited to print such sensitive matters, uh, products or materials. So I get your concern because counter service, the way we knew it 10 years ago, five or 10 years from now will be nothing like it. You won't even recognize it. It's very frustrating. Like I said, I'm running around town here this morning. It's not like I don't have anything to do, okay? I just told you I bought a new house, so, you know, I'm building a deck and all this stuff, okay? It's just constant. But, yeah, I, I, I know the world is changing. Everything else has gone to computer age. But, you know, this is employment for people, and there's still a lot of us that really like to look into somebody's eyes and, uh, I, gross way of putting it, but smell their breath and talk to somebody and have a real human being sort you out. You know, that, that, it's gone the way of the great auk. <laughs> Unfortunately for many, that's exactly right. Uh, and, you know, it's not that all seniors can't do it because many of them, of course, can do it. My mother can do all these things, and many seniors listen to the program can absolutely do it. So the, the issue I think that rears its head is it seems to be changing so quickly, and change is hard. I mean, it's been proven time and time again that any type of change is very difficult, but things like having to take a spin in and out of Mount Pearl twice to satisfy something as fundamental as what you're trying to achieve is a lot to ask of someone, whether it be the time and or the money to get your rig in and out of Mount Pearl. I totally get it. I appreciate the time, Tom. Good luck with it all. Anyway, have a good one, Patty. You Thank too. Thanks for my call, buddy. Cheers. My, my pleasure. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, DMV is going to change big time. And I'll just add to it, and I might be in the minority here, really curious as to how the government is proceeding with what they were telling us was one of the, the most important guiding documents about the province's economy, the Green Report, and it is the DMV and what the future of the DMV holds, whether it be privatized or however that looks. So I know that... It got a lot of attention initially, and maybe that's waned, but not in my mind. I'd love to know where the province is on Marble, which they've been trying to offload for a long time. Bolarum, which is actually a, a flurry of activity out there now with the FPSO in there. And then, of course, it's the NLC. It's the oil equity position that we have. So there was a lot to it, but whether we're ever going to get an update as the status of one project or another or one issue or another. We didn't get anything in this most recent budget where you think you might have seen an update. But anyway, keep trying. Let's go to line number one. Barry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Patty, it's going to be that time of the year very, very soon coming up for the Capelin roll. Well, the weather is right. The whales are around. Yeah. Certainly is. Certainly is. And they're uh, they, they, I hear that some of the commercial fisher uh, harvesters are uh, after the Capelin now. Uh, Patty, um, you know, in the past, talked about sharing the harvest. And uh, we that's one of our projects is uh, the donation of Capelin to the food banks. Uh, just give them a call up now to uh, call out to anybody who goes down after the Capelin, uh, whether you get them or not. Just think of some, getting some extra ones and bring them home, wash them up, put them in a bag, and donate them to the food banks. They are greatly appreciated. Yeah, I mean, every time we talk about the commercial harvest, especially on uh, Capelin, uh, the forage fish and the linchpin that it is, people get quite upset, especially the fish harvesters who go after the Capelin, because they're not wrong in saying the percentage of the total spawning biomass that's actually taken in the Capelin fishery is fairly minuscule, but that doesn't mean that the stock itself is not in a position where we should be very careful about how we proceed in years to come, whether people with Capelin or the, uh, the concerns people rightfully share about the mackerel fishery or herring or anything else. But anyway, yeah, here comes the Capelin season. I don't really go for it. I, 
you know, when I was a kid, I used to be mesmerized by it, but not so much anymore. Yeah, I, I still enjoy it. I have a, I have a, a cast net. I just got it repaired there just over the winter. I got a kitty's neck, and uh, I'm going down now as soon as I hear about the cable and uh, get some. I bring them home and uh, put them in a uh, – I just wash them. I don't clean them. I put baker's dozen in a sandwich Ziploc bag. I put a sticker for sharing the harvest and freeze it. And I was just down to uh, uh, Single Parent Association yesterday uh, checking to see if they were going to want some donated capon, and they said absolutely yes. I was donating to Bridges to Hope and uh, to uh, our new uh, uh, charity, which is not, maybe not new in uh, people's minds, and that's uh, Connections with, for Seniors. Yeah, I mean, whenever we can get something that people have been used to, maybe call it a comfort food, of course, and I'll have a couple of feet of capelin, no question about it. How I get them remains to be seen. Yes, and uh, it, it's just a, it's a, it's a free resource, you know. It's just there for the taking, uh, if you know what I mean. Yep. Uh, but uh, food bank clientele may not Patty, have the resources or transportation to even go down to Middle Cove Beach or any other beach to get them. Quite possibly. Uh, yes, well, that's that's what I understand, Patty, from the uh, over, over, God, eight years that I've been donating capital now to the uh, to the charities and that. And uh, so, you know, it's just when people go down that to Capelin, they, they sometimes forget about that. And I'm just giving a, a friendly reminder to say, think about these people at food banks or, or seniors in your life, because they would greatly appreciate them, too. Very likely. Barry, I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks a lot. Yeah, Patty, I'd just like to say one more thing, and that's sure. about the, uh, about the uh, River Guardians. Uh, this, uh, this past week... Uh, Noted the uh, the uh, 40th anniversary, for, uh, 40th annual meeting of the North North Atlantic Salmon Conservation Organization, or NASCO, and we got a picture of uh, uh, DFO Mr. Murray giving a uh, speech. Oh no, she's talking about the, the conservation of Atlantic salmon. I don't know. I don't think I've I've only ever spoken to her once, though. I have a pretty long list of questions that I'd love to be able to pose to Minister Murray. Obviously, maybe we'll get a chance in the near future. Uh, appreciate the time this morning, Barry. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. It's always been a pleasure. Take care. My pleasure. Bye-bye. All right, before we get to the break, let's go to line number two. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. How are you today? Not bad. How about you? Hey, I'm pretty good. I just got two things to say. Uh, number one, hopefully, hopefully, I'm praying to God. That the NHL will end tonight. I guess tonight is the final game or something. And Gary Batman will get his wish to either Florida or uh, Las Vegas will win the cup. The one thing that Gary Batman doesn't realize is that for the last number of years, especially this year, the viewership is dipping. And I think this uh, Sonic Cup final may have been the worst in the last 10 years, as far as the viewership is concerned. There was a, a man on, one of the commentators on the American Sports Network said the other night that more people are watching bowling than the Stanley Cup Finals. So hopefully it'll be over tonight. It's not a very attractive matchup for many, you know, traditional hockey fans. Vegas and Florida, I mean, I've been watching a bit of it. It's been some pretty good hockey, to be honest with you. Vegas just have a real good team. They have yeah. a really solid, deep team getting the goaltending. Florida may be running out of gas a little bit, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's over tonight. Uh, another thing, 
The last couple of days you've been talking about the problem of presenting inclusivity in the school system and the parents are against it. Of course, whatever the Americans are against, we're against. Uh, I want to point out, I went to Catholic schools here in St. John's. You did too. And, you know, I knew about gay issues when I finished grade 11. And there was nothing taught in our schools about it. And for these parents who are against inclusivity courses, they don't realize that their kids already know about it. And how do they? Because they meet those people in the schools. I taught, I taught school for 31 years in Saskatchewan, and I taught gay students, many of which made it plain to me that they were gay. And I, I, I know, uh, I'm not going to mention names, not that anyone would know them, but I know one student who was gay himself, and Patty, he saved lives. There were many kids in our school, and they turned to him when they were going through a process that they thought perhaps they may be gay. And he saved lives by telling, uh, telling them that the situation they found themselves wasn't their choice that, and discuss other issues. And these parents and these people who are importing these issues on the United States, yeah, they may do away with inclusivity, but you know what? They're not going to do away with talking about uh, transgender, being gay, uh, being drag. They're not going to stop it because they're meeting them in their schools. And by the time they finish high school, they know all about it. And I just want to point that out, Patty. I appreciate the time, Brian. Thanks. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, job. Maybe tune in a little bit, but I got my eye on the Jays in Baltimore tonight. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the conditions in the hospital in Happy Valley Goose Bay. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Simeon. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. morning to you. Oh, um, I'm, uh, the reason why I'm calling because the, uh, I was very disappointed yesterday. Uh, I was in Goose Bay Hospital uh, yesterday, but I was here before when I got injured my knee, and my knee got swollen up really bad, and I went to the emergency, and uh, they gave me only a cup of uh, three, three Tylenol and sent me home, and I was in a lot of pain and agony, but but I was very surprised that they didn't take any blood work or x-rays, something like that. And I mean, I should, I think that's a pretty, uh, uh, very simple protocol. I think uh, that physicians do, I think, if there was an injury. But anyway, I'm not a doctor or any, uh, don't have any medical uh, training. But, but what I see, I've been calling, I've been talking about the, uh, about Labrador, Health Labrador in, in Labrador in Goose Bay, especially the hospital in Goose Bay, because uh, the conditions that, that, uh, that we see and the, the treatment that we receive as, uh, as you know, people. And uh, yeah, yes, last night, uh, two days, two, two nights ago, I was in the hospital, I was admitted to the hospital because of my injuries, so I came back with, uh, with severe uh, pain and, and they, they finally admitted me but one doctor was uh, very 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 thorough with me so did a thorough examination and all that they found out that I had a bad infection and finally they admitted me to the hospital and uh, 
But when I was in the hospital, when I was in the room, and I was very, very in a lot of pain, and I've been call, calling the nurses, and nobody came, and and finally, uh, I told I told them in the morning. I said uh, I, I I couldn't walk. I mean, I, I wanted to use washroom. So I needed help, but nobody was there to help me. But I, I waited for, uh, I think it was 5 o'clock in the morning when I tried to uh, urinate. And uh, finally, somebody came and uh, on 7 o'clock in the morning to my room and helped me out. And uh, the thing is that I, that I don't uh, that I don't really like how how... You know, people have been treated in a hospital. I'm not the first one that's been that's been treated like this, but uh, there's a lot of bad experiences. Well, you say that because you didn't get an X-ray or a blood work no, or what have no, you, because an X-ray, no. unless they suspected a broken bone. There's yeah, no, but the no dish, value that's, in yeah, yeah, but I, I told them I was really much my my uh, knee was very swollen, swollen, and. Uh, I mean, they, they should at least look, uh, consider it the uh, doing blood work or X-ray and uh, find out what's going on. They just gave me three at the time and then sent me home. And uh, you know, and I came back again two days after, and uh, my knee got worse. And finally, I got admitted to the hospital, got the X-ray, blood work, and the whole nine yards. And uh, I didn't really appreciate how 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 I experienced it with myself when when I was in a lot of pain and couldn't walk, couldn't do anything myself, and uh, and I told him I said uh, just send me home and just take my uh, my IVs and uh, if I can if I'm can suffer in the hospital, I might as well suffer at home. Same thing, right? I'm I'm in the hospital. I'm not supposed to suffer and. And they supposed to treated me, but uh, that didn't transpire. But uh, you know, I was really disappointed. But anyway, I got really upset, and uh, when I told them that, I said I'm going home without doctor's uh, consent or any anything like that because I said I'm I can't take this anymore because I mean I wasn't treated right. I said I didn't feel like I was treated right because of the agony and all and. The, uh, the help that I needed wasn't there, and, and finally, yeah, I got really upset. And then finally, they gave me attention. They said, "Okay, we'll we'll sorry what happened," and wanted me to file a complaint. I said, "No, there's no point filing a complaint because nothing's going to be done anyway." Because I've been I've been talking to you, Patty, about this about this before, and. It wasn't. It's not going to be the first time. It's going to be the last time either. So anyway, I need to see some some changes and uh, some changes. Something needs to change in the hospital. Something. And I think uh, the. Uh, I really hope the chiefs, our leaders, can uh, can really do something because it seems like they don't they don't really care about about anything because you, I haven't really seen them doing anything. All I see them is uh, getting contracts themselves, you know, making money themselves and, and, and people get and people suffer while while they're doing that and that's not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be advocating their their constituents. 
I hope you're doing okay, Simeon. Uh, not only the knee, but otherwise. I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for the call. Take care of yourself. Joe, yeah. Take care. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, this is a topic that absolutely gets people's attention and gets their emotions running. That's about any time we talk about animals that are being neglected or abused. Rod's in the queue right after this. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line one. Rod, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Patty, I wanted to speak uh, about the uh, situation happening right now in Cornerbrook. Uh, the RNC seized an animal, uh, a dog, that allegedly bit uh, a lady. Uh, and the issue here is is the length of time it takes to process this. Now, this happened six weeks ago, and they have nowhere to hold this animal uh, <clears throat> humanely or safely. So at the moment, the dog is being held in the old city pound, which was uh, closed down because it was inadequate. And uh, that's a process that started 20-plus years ago when the SPCA in Cornerbrook uh, decided to build a new building. Excuse me, Patty. Build a new building and take one of those responsibilities. However, uh, when the RNC sees these animals, they still haven't uh, anywhere to put them. so the dog is sitting in the old city pound. It's, uh, you know, I've been in it many times as an animal advocate. And I can tell you that it's in a cage now, probably, you know, three by six. Uh, from what I understand, uh, once a day, they go in and uh, clean any, uh, any, uh, any excrement or anything out of the, out of the play. They, <clears throat> they block the dog back in so he can't get at them. They toss in his food and water. And leave again. He's been there like this for six weeks. Uh, you know, there's no exercise. Uh, there's no companionship for the animal. And we're all waiting for a trial to happen to see if the dog has to be put down. Now, I mean, <coughs> if the dog, excuse <coughs> me, Patty, uh, if the dog is indeed, uh, you know, deemed uh, dangerous, then absolutely let's do it. But how long does it take to do that? Six weeks? Six months? I mean, enough's enough. In the past, I've seen this happen before. It went on for several months, and I'm not prepared to sit by and let this happen to this animal. What's the what's the rationale behind six weeks later? We still don't know what happened in the alleged biting incident. Well, How does it even unfold? Uh, or the process, I mean, pardon me. The, the process, they're waiting to have a trial. So I guess, uh, you know... Uh, well, that's only a dog, I, I guess is what they're saying. Or the courts are jammed up. I'm really not sure. I guess there's a bit of everything. Uh, you know, like in a situation like this, has the dog been assessed? Was it checked to see if it had uh, something that caused it to bite me? Maybe a, a cut or a broken leg or something. Has a vet gone in and assessed this dog? Has a behavioral pet therapist, and there, there are the, we have those, Somebody that can go in and look at this animal and assess it and say, no, this animal is not violent or a threat. Or, yes, it is. I think it is. And then we do the right thing. But, uh, you know, but to leave this animal for this length of time uh, sitting there is, uh, is not right. Not on, any, not on any stretch of the imagination. I'm a little confused. Is there not a better, safer, healthier place for this animal to be versus in the old dilapidated pound? Absolutely. It should be back with the owners. Once we do the assessment, we give it back to the owners, and then the, and then the police, the courts can make a decision to either seize the dog or not. 
In most cases, when a dog bites somebody, there's a reason behind it. But the, what I understand from the people I've talked to that witnessed this, uh, there were a bunch. This dog had gotten out of its uh, yard or home or off its lead, and uh, was on the run for most of the day, and was being chased by a bunch of kids uh, on corners. The dog got cornered. The lady was in the facility and got in the area, and uh, and got bitten. Uh, now that's what I've, that's the story I keep hearing. But uh, regardless, you know, an assessment should have been done. And in many many times in the past, these animals were surrendered back to the owners. And it went to went to a trial, or it went to a judge to make the decision. Uh, you know, right now, six weeks later, we got this dog living in an old an old uh, uh, building in in the back of Commercial Street in Cornwall. It's not fit. It doesn't sound it. Uh, I appreciate no. the time, Rod. Anything else you want to say this morning? Well, I hope that this finally gets to the right ears. I've come in. I've tried to contact a few people to get. Uh, to get some, uh, you know, get this moving forward with whatever the situation it turns out to be. However, uh, it seems like everyone's just ignoring my uh, my uh, concern. So I guess the best thing to do is contact you. And, and once again, uh, you know, I really appreciate it and appreciate your advocacy for for all all the downtrodden, including the pets. And, and thank you very much. Appreciate your time, Rod. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Have a good day. Now, you too. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Hmm. Uh, anyway, let's keep going here. Let's go to line number three. Okay, so it's back on the 17th of May of 2017. There was a massive flood in the town of Mud Lake. Six years later, just about six years later, the folks in the community are still waiting for a resolution. Join us on line number three is John Chason. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. Yeah, I, you got an awful nice show going on today, especially the ones with the, uh, the composting and that in Cornerbrook and all that. I mean, that was excellent for the farmers and that. You know, I liked that. But anyway, in light of that, uh, did you come up with any information on uh, what I was talking about, you know, the Mud Lake flood? Yeah, actually had the lawyer on. Uh, the lead attorney, I think, called us from Halifax just a couple of days after you connected us with him. So that's uh, that's as much information as we were able to get. Okay, for now. Yeah. But anyway, in light of that, I mean, they're still on the go, but uh, it's, it's it, like you, you say, the way we are, we're frustrated, and it's, it's time for something to be done. Uh, you know, like in like now, what's going to happen is there's something's going to happen drastically uh, if nothing's done within too long because everybody's getting really frustrated with it and everything. And, and you know, like uh, the only time it gets brought up is when you brings it up or I brings it up, uh, you know, in light of everything. But uh, it, it, it's frustrating at, at the best of times. Yeah, we had Ray Wagner on who is the lead attorney on this file. The class action was certified back in 2019. The province got backed out of it. So that's a curious feature. So now it's with uh, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. The issue that we also spoke to Mr. Wagner about was just how much documentation that they're still waiting to get from the utility so they can proceed and get this class action settled one way or the other. So that's about all we know. And then there was some confusion about whether or not you accepted any provincial funding and consequently you would be removed from the class. So those are the types of things we spoke to Mr. Wagner about. Yeah, and another thing too is about, you know, people taking money uh, uh, from across the uh, mud lake on this side. They don't even talk to her because I'm, I'm a part of that class action and I'm part, I'm on this side of the river. I'm not on the other side. And I had a big flood here on my side too and there's never nothing said about that. Uh, they said mud lake, uh, yeah, mud lake, but we're on the end, this end, on mud lake road on the end. But, uh, and you know, there's nothing ever said about that. But uh, in light of that, anyway, the lawyers are taking care of it. Uh, 
And uh, another thing now is that uh, the funding that they're giving the people across to uh, the Mud Lake that's uh, is taking the money, but then they're losing the electricity, losing the power of their house. Uh, now, people's down there got power, and they got cabins down there as cabins, and they're allowed to keep their cabin, they're allowed to keep the power into their cabins and everything, but the people who's taking the money, they're allowed to keep their house, they're allowed to keep it as a cabin, but to get your power cut off, and, and there's no way in the world they say that they're going to be reconnected, which is something not right there. Yeah, but isn't that issue surrounding the fact that if the government said they'll give you up to $270,000, but you must leave Mud Lake, so and if you don't leave, the provision of many government services will be cut off. I guess that's how that is working, is it, John? But yeah, but why why would you cut off power? Even if if, if you got the money, yes, if you got to leave, I got a lot of people that's left that's come across here and on this side. I know quite a few of them, and uh, but they get their power cut off. But then there's uh, there's people right alongside of them that's got cabin, uh, like it's it's not a cabin, it's a house, but it's used or utilized as a cabin. They only use it once in a while. They're allowed to keep their power. I guess because they didn't take any money. Now, I'm not, I don't live in the region, so obviously I don't know the ins and the outs, but that says to me that they didn't accept that $270,000, which came with the caveat. If you take the money, you have to leave the community. So far, it's cost the government about $2.5 million, if I remember correctly. The, uh, the deadline for application for that relocation money is the end of this month, so I'm sure there's still people yes. in the community that are looking at the class and wondering, you know, even yes. when all the documentation is in hand, it could absolutely take months and months in the courts to proceed through a class action. So I don't think yeah. I'd be too surprised if some residents say, well, you know what, I'm not going to wait and possibly get nothing. I'm going to take that $270,000 move. That's right, and that's a, that's a good. But but I'm talking about the, the cabin owners that's up there. Not. They got cabins as built as a house. It's a house, uh, but they're allowed to keep their power because they only utilizes that them that house uh, pertain. They only use that house once in a while. They don't use it all the time, but ma- ma- majority of the time they do go back and forth to Mud Lake and they stay there. They're allowed to keep their power. Yeah, no, I heard that part. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, that's just what's so frustrating. You know, that if if they if they let the other people say, well, if you're going to move, you take this there, sign the document, you're going to move, you can keep your power to your house as a cabin. That's probably going to uh, utilize it as as a cabin from now on. Okay, perfect. But why is it uh, good for one? And it's not good for the other. That's something we'd have to put to Hydro, or the minister responsible. Yeah. Because I I can't answer that, but it's a question I'm willing to ask on your behalf. Yes, okay, sir. Thank you very much for your day. Appreciate your time, John. Take care. Okay, sir. All right, bye-bye. bye-bye. Yeah, six years later. And, you know, of course, the government and Hydro brought in experts to say that it wasn't a direct result of the construction on the Grand River at Muskrat Falls and the frazzle ice buildup. Of course, the class and Mr. Wagner and his uh, team of attorneys, they brought in their own experts to say it's absolutely because of the development at Muskrat Falls. So without question. There's going to be some folks that remain in Mud Lake that are going to say, I'm going to do the calculations here. I think I'm better off taking that money and leaving the community as much as they might not want to. Because there is always an essence of when you're up against the big guy, whether it be a big corporation or a government, there is the concept of dragging their heels because they have the time and the resources to outweigh you. Not necessarily fair, but part and parcel with how this generally proceeds through the courts. All right, before we get to the break, let's go to four. Good morning, Evelyn. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Excellent today. Thanks. How about you? Yeah, I'm fine. Good. Just returning your call to give you thanks for the uh, help you've re- received from you dealing with motor registration. Did you get it figured out? Yes, it's uh, all resolved, and uh, I want to phone back and give you a very, uh, th- thank you this morning. 
we're happy to help. Sometimes we can just give you a point in the right direction, and we hope that the bureaucrats can help you figure it out. Yes, you did. You turned me in the right direction. I want to thank the uh, MHA, too. He was quite uh, helpful, too, in our area, Clement Forsey. Uh, really, that day we uh, covered a lot of ground, and things just uh, worked out great. I appreciate that, and I'm glad it worked out successfully for you, Evelyn. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Take Bye. care. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the shooting that took place in the city of St. John's yesterday, Regatta Plaza, right on Elizabeth Avenue in the heart of the East End. Some big questions. We're not going to get any details because now it's in the hands of the serious incident response team, and until they complete their investigation, we're only going to get the rumor mill. And Loretta wants to talk about nosy or noisy. Is it noisy? Noisy neighbors. Okay, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line five. Loretta, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, I want to complain about Newfoundland and Labrador housing. Okay. Uh, I'm here now eight years. I've been crucified this past four years with the neighbors that people are putting in up over me. I'm after having my car vandalized out on the lot. I had my computer taken right out of my... Uh, they got into my back window and I took the computer right off the computer desk and I phoned housing about it. And they told me, uh, you shouldn't have had your window open. Yes, but right? in this in this case, Loretta, would that not be something better served uh, by the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary versus Newfoundland Labrador Housing? Because they can't go ahead and press any charges or anything like that for no, you. No, I know that. But they tell me to call the police, and the police will not come to this building unless it's a real emergency. Now, I was in there twice last week. To get a transfer, not even out of the building, just another apartment in the building. And uh, I told her the circumstances. I mean, I can set my alarm clock with the man upstairs, and that's all I'm hearing is bump, 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 bump. All is from 7 o'clock in the morning or 7.30 in the morning to 4 o'clock in the evening. And it's supposed to be noise control, and there's nothing they can do about it. But like I said, she told me I was on emergency list last week. And when she called me back on Friday morning, she said, no, the, your accommodations are suitable for you. I was never on a nerve pill in my life till the past four years. And, I mean, I can't get nothing done. What right? kind of damage did they do to your vehicle? Uh, there was $3,000 done. They uh, bed in the bumper. Now, I don't know if, that, if it was someone in the building or... Uh, there's so much traffic coming back and forth here, I don't know, right? I can't prove who done it, but apparently there's people here with their windows open all night and no one here hears nothing, right? But uh, I, like I said, I like the building. If they'd only transfer me out in the front uh, to get a bit of peace away from this person upstairs, Right? And I I can't get no headway with them. They told me that she told me again last week, put in for another transfer. I said, what's the sense? I'm after putting in for three transfers so far. I'm after having letters from my doctor about to, uh, having to put me on nerve pills. And still, no, they won't do nothing. And, and suppose- after, they are after... Uh, switching other people from upstairs to downstairs and vice versa. And I asked for a transfer, like I say, not even at the building, right? And no way. 
So I suppose you don't feel there's any sense in trying to talk to the person who's doing this. I've been up there. He's an, uh, well, I don't know, but I'm thinking he's an alcoholic. He's never sober. He, uh, che- when check day comes now, I'll be crucified for the next three or four days because he'll, he must get drunk and fall down and it feels like he's going to come right down to my living room. And I'm after telling him all that, and that's all he says, put in for another transfer, put in for another transfer, but I'm not getting no headway. Yeah, well, I'm sorry to hear that. And sometimes, as the people say, the best neighbor is a tall fence, but, of course, it doesn't work in a building like yours where it's above your head. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and like I said, I get up in the morning, and I I don't even go to my family anymore because I'm that crooked to not getting enough sleep. And, I mean, I'm a... I'm a heavy-duty diabetic, and I'm on, you know, other pills besides that, and I'm I'm just, I think my next option is to go to the Waterford, and I think it's ridiculous. I mean, I'm 64 years old, and I don't see why I got to put up with this for whatever life I got left on this, in this world. I'm sorry to hear you're so aggravated and at the end of your rope with what should be something that someone can solve on your behalf. Have you ever taken the opportunity, if you say they beat up your vehicle, they climbed in your window, stole your computer, did you ever call the police? Yes, I called the police when when they uh, beat up the front of my car and I put, when they gave me the file number, I reported that to the housing and he says there's nothing I can do if I got no proof of who hit me, right? So there you go. Hopefully, it's I mean, something. I'm only on social services, and I had to get my uh, son-in-law or my niece's husband to uh, try to do something with my car. Right? It's ridiculous. I'm sorry to hear you're in this predicament and situation. Mm-hmm. And I don't know who who else to go to. Right? But like I said, if anyone else, there was a lady there a couple weeks ago. Got to transfer Newfoundland Labrador housing or subsidising her, but still, Nolly won't. They won't do that for me. I'm sorry to hear this, Loretta. I wish you good luck. I wish I knew where to point you. But if you've been to housing and been to the police, I'm not sure where else to go. Oh, I see. Okay, and thank you, Patty, so much. You're welcome. Take care. Okay. Good luck. All right. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Oh, my. Uh, let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly, Mount Pearl Southlands, Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? That's too bad. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm not doing bad at all, sir. Patty, I just wanted to uh, speak about the uh, that tragic uh, incident uh, that happened uh, yesterday at the Regatta Plaza. Um, obviously, uh, you know, the whole matter is under investigation, so I don't want to speak about the incident itself. Uh, I do certainly want to offer my condolences to the family of the deceased and uh, as well, you know, just to say, I'm thinking about the officer involved. I mean, to uh, to uh, take you know to to take someone's life is a uh, one hell of a thing, uh, regardless of justification. And I'm sure it must be tough on him and or her and uh, and the officer's family as well. So certainly thinking of everybody uh, involved. Um, but that's not the angle I wanted to come uh, at this with. The, the concern I want to raise today, because as I say, the cert investigation will, will look into, you know, what happened exactly, and I, I have no idea what happened. But um, my concern is around uh, occupational health and safety uh, concern for um, all of the employees uh, involved that, that would be working at that facility. 
Um, and I'm just wondering, I'm hoping that, you know, while there is a cert investigation, obviously looking into the, uh, the shooting incident, uh, I would hope that um, through the Department of Digital Service uh, and uh, Government NL, uh, Digital Services um, and Service NL, that uh, the Occupational Health and Safety uh, Branch of the government, I'm hoping that they are also going to be doing their investigation uh, as to, you know, what happened uh, from the point of view of employee safety. Um, you know, I, I look at, you know, different facilities around. One that comes to mind that, that that has really done it well, to my mind, and I've had occasion to be there a number of times, is uh, workers' compensation. If you go up to workers' compensation and, uh, and uh, you know, to meet with a, a worker or whatever, first of all, it's a secured lobby with security. Nobody can get it. You can get into the lobby, but you cannot. It's all key-coded doors. You can't get beyond that. Uh, if you're going to meet with a worker... Uh, they have uh, a couple of offices down at the main lobby. They let you into an office. You come in through one door. The worker comes in through a door on the other side, and then there's a barrier between the two of you, and you can have your discussion or whatever. And it's set up that way for the protection of the worker because sometimes, you know, uh, emotions can be high, and, and especially when you're you're talking about, you know, these types of, of situations and people are perhaps desperate, you know, over their situation and, and financial worries and everything else, is there for the protection of the worker. And they've done it very well. I'm not sure, uh, to be honest, what kind of a setup we have in uh, these other government offices that are dealing directly with the public. And that's not to put everybody in the same boat to say that, you know, everybody that would be on income support would be a danger to the public. That's absolutely not true. But we do know that there are going to be some individuals, uh, whether because they have complex mental health uh, issues or potentially addictions or whatever the case might be, some that, that would potentially have the propensity for violence and to be dangerous. And obviously, you know, something happened yesterday that, that, that led to this incident. And if the officer involved felt the need that he had to use force, then if that officer wasn't there, would this individual have been a danger to the employees? I don't know. Well, we don't know. And I, I'm not... I know what protections are in place. I, I'm not that interested in opining because yeah. there's no earthly idea. You know, I guess right. there's been incidents, whether it be the security measures at the Confederation Building and whether it yeah. be what it may have indeed have happened in a workers' compensation office. That has led to a different type or a heightened uh, sense of security or heightened security protocols because... Some of these offices, it just stands to reason that you would have much more emotional interactions based on whether it be an outstanding claim for your comp or you got cut off or whatever the case may be. So yep. I can kind of understand how different offices take a different approach. But we are at a place where there could indeed be very dangerous circumstances wherever it is, in and around a courtroom, in and around this particular provincial government office, which I've never been in, so I have no idea how it's configured or any protections inside. But I guess that'll be part of it. We'll understand very clearly when Mr. King finishes the uh, investigation about what happened, how it happened, and what next steps are, whether it be regarding the uh, officer and or what the civilian did. And yes, the security that led to a tragic shooting. So surely that's going to be part of the investigation. Well, yes, I'm, I'm sure that that would be part of it. But, you know, uh, again, 
I'm looking at it specifically as well from the perspective of we have an occupational health and safety division. They are there to ensure that the Occupational Health and Safety Act and regulations are being followed by all employers, including the provincial government. And so, you know, I would hope that they are also going to, uh, you know, given the fact that this now happened at this facility, um, uh, I would hope that they are going to go in and have a look at the facility, have a look at what policies and protocols may be in place to look at how the office is configured and so on uh, to ensure uh, that, uh, you know, that uh, employees are protected. I mean, everybody deserves when they go to work, as we say, uh, everyone wants to come home in the same condition as when they left. I know when we think of occupational health and safety, quite, you know, often we think of, you know, uh, more industrial type sites. We think of, uh, you know, uh, mines. We think of uh, production plants. We think of construction sites and that type of thing. But the reality of it is, is that everybody's safety uh, has to be protected and is protected under the Health and Safety Act regulations. And this is a different type of scenario than you might see at an industrial site, but it is a safety issue nonetheless. And so uh, I'm, I'm certainly hoping, I would certainly call on Minister Studley, if she hasn't already done so, to perhaps uh, have the Occupational Safety Branch also look into, not, not the incident itself, I mean, that's what the CERT um, uh, team is there to investigate the, uh, that, that specific incident but simply to look at that particular office and other like offices that may exist uh, in the government that would be dealing with, you know, a similar type uh, clientele and so on, and to make sure that all those offices are set up in a way that the employees are protected, that their safety is uh, protected. Appreciate the time, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. uh, Yeah, so... The investigation will be about the incident, but of course it'll paint a very clear picture about the setting and whether or not there is a security concern or issue that needs to be addressed because a variety of government buildings have security. Check-in, and you've got to be uh, buzzed through, all those types of things. Obviously, uh, what Mr. Lane describes as the setup at workers' comp leads me to think that there must have been an incident in the past that led them to create this configuration for the safety of the caseworker. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, the topic is entirely up to you. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Well, as usual, like I try to mention as frequently as possible, is that the subject and the topics are not up to me. They're entirely up to you. So just in response to an email, which I did respond to during the news break, it was how come we didn't bring up a motion that was put on the floor of the House of Commons yesterday by the Conservative Party of Canada regarding Paul Bernardo. Serial rapist, serial killer. He's been transferred from maximum security prison in Millhaven in Ontario to a medium security prison in Quebec, which has drawn the ire of many, and understandably so. I mean, between his role in the deaths of Leslie Mahaffey and Kirsten French in the early 90s, Mahaffey was killed in 91, French in 1992, and of course he's been accused of a bunch of rapes on top of this. So the motion was to have Mr. Bernardo put back in maximum security. And from 100,000 feet above sea level, that makes sense to, I would imagine, the majority of Canadians. Now, 
he's been labeled a dangerous offender. It's likely he'll never see the light of day again. So what I suppose what I really need here is someone who has the legal expertise to help walk us through it. Because I see a lot of people defending the government on this front, saying that, well, it's, uh, it's illegal and it's unconstitutional. Based on what? Because that's some of the vagaries that, you know, kind of dominate some of the social media conversations is just an utterance without anything to back it up, whether it be a link to the actual uh, section inside the Constitution or the legal issues regarding transfer or the government's role therein. Now, is, does Bernardo belong in maximum security? Fair enough. I've got no problem with that. Why would I, right? He's a serial killer, serial rapist. So we'll try to understand the ins and the outs of that. So... I did not not bring it up because it's not a curious conversation. I don't really know much about it beyond the fact that... I'll ask this question. Do we want politicians in the House of Commons to determine where someone is incarcerated? You know, we've had the conversation even here uh, regarding the Gregory Parsons case. And Doyle has been transferred out to what he calls Club Fed. And he's a killer. He's a murderer. And now I admit there was a sexual component to his crime. So on that front... I don't think you're going to get a whole lot of people argue the optics of Bernardo being moved out of a, a maximum security prison. So maybe they will try to find a lawyer here because it isn't an interesting conversation. And it's not the first time things like this have happened. So, again, with the dangerous offender tag, it's quite likely, and hopefully this is the case, is that he is never released because his psychopathy makes him a danger to uh, everyone around him, including inside the prison walls. So, again... It's not If it's not a topic that I bring up, but you're curious to hear more conversation about it, or you'd like to have your input aired live on the program, that's all you have to do. Just give us a shout, get in the queue, we can talk about it from any angle. In addition to that, another email regarding affordable housing. We heard the call from Loretta. She's got a problem with a neighbor, a nosy, a noisy neighbor, and up beyond that, accused the person of stealing her laptop, damaging her vehicle. So there's more to it than just Newfoundland and Labrador housing. And some accommodation should be made or something for this man, I think she described, uh, for what he's doing and the problems he's causing for the other tenants in the building. But the question specifically about affordable housing is about the two most recent announcements, one of 750 units, one of 850 units, what the status is of construction. We don't have a clear, understandable update from the provincial government in particular about the progress being made on any of those 1,500 units. One of the announcements was last year. You can only hope that they made some progress during the last construction season. And once again, you can only hope that they're doing something to forward to further this 1,500 units because God knows we need it. The concern being offered wasn't just about status report. Is that is it simply going to be focused on the Northeast Avalon? Fair question. We have a distinct vacancy problem here, but affordable housing is an issue that is persistent in almost every part of the province. Of course it is. So in general terms, the vast majority of these units are scheduled to be built here on the Northeast Avalon. There is going to be some pretty good rent control numbers associated with these units, whether it be uh, in the hands of the private sector or for not-for-profit community groups. So we will try to get a status update for you on where we are with any of those 1,500 units because it's a massive question. In addition to that, when rent is so far out of control and the scammers are lurking around every corner, we brought you the story yesterday about the issues surrounding this one lady in the news, Mickey Blackwood. And she lives very close by the university. And people have been knocking on her door, trying to see, or asking to view the apartment she has for rent. But the fact is, she doesn't have an apartment for rent. 
People have just co-opted photographs from one listing or another, put it on a Facebook university page, and consequently, they've also been asking for uh, deposits. And some people have obviously done it because one young fellow who knocked on Miss Blackwood's door admitted that he did indeed forward along the monies. That's how desperate people are to get a place, so they'd be willing to do that. By law, so to talk about red flags, by law, the renter, the landlord, is only able to ask for 75% of a month's rent in the form of a security deposit. So if there's ever an ask over and above that, that's an absolute giveaway that you're dealing with a scam. So I guess they're trying to prey on folks who might not be living close by and consequently make it easy for them to go over and view an apartment that is a real listing or fake listing. So there's a couple of those issues on top of you know what would be the concept of re uh, rent control, how that would work. Is it time? In other jurisdictions, it hasn't necessarily worked as intended. So the concept makes a lot of sense, but it also comes with some wiggle room and some loopholes where it doesn't necessarily across the board control the rent to the, uh, to the level that people can actually afford. Because inside that world of affordability, you and me, we both know every th single thing we touch, every single good and service that we buy costs more today than it did last year. It costs exorbitantly more than it did in 2019. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, lots of show left to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line one. Good morning, Mark Wilson. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's it going? Very well, thanks. How about you? Good. Um, I just wanted to basically talk to you. I just wanted to follow up a little bit. I know um, you had uh, mentioned my name and Stephen Gardner's name there last Friday after the announcement for funding for the downtown safety. Um, so I just wanted to kind of follow up. We've been chatting about issues in the Livingstone, Longs Hill, Cashier Park kind of area over the course of what it's been a couple of years, at least. We've been chatting about it. And, and uh, folks here in the neighborhood have been trying to get some stuff done for many years. I would say since 2013, we've been working on this. Um, right after the murder that happened there on Tessier Place. So, um, anyways, I I, uh, I did I did attend one of the meetings there of downtown safety, and uh, I I you know as a musician, which is kind of partially why why that organization uh, formed was to you know protect musicians, keep safety in the downtown. Um, so I did attend. In that meeting, I, I did say to folks that I thought it was important that the owners there in George Street and the and the downtown safety uh, group address the underlying issues that are causing a lot of these issues: um, housing, addictions, mental health, and that's one thing that we have not heard really yet. So I'd, I'd like to I'd like to hear that from folks, whether it be them, whether it be uh, organizations that are responsible for safety, uh, like the RNC. Um, I'd like to hear us talk about those things. Well, you know, inside that pocket of money, okay, fair enough. They're going to make some form of investment, whether it be for better lighting or to clean the place up, and awareness campaigns and IDs to make sure we know who's coming and going out of the area. Fair enough. But, you know, even when the RNC chief was questioned about whether or not RNC officers will be embedded in this hope to make it a safer place in the downtown core, he wouldn't commit until the work of the committee is done to whether or not they recommend it. But if it doesn't see RNC officers embedded, 
then you can only chip away at the edges if we're just talking about lighting and awareness campaigns. We know it's dim in corners down there. We know that there's an issue with whether it be uh, time it takes to get out of there in a taxi. We know that there's a lack of understanding who's coming and going. But nothing's going to protect you quite like the presence of police officers. If you had two... Uh, two different groups of two officers each walking in opposing directions throughout the course of the night, then the reduction in crime would be, I think, significant. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Um, I would agree with that fully. I think that the, I think at the announcement last uh, on Friday morning, I think the mayor had said that they were, they had put 600,000 into lighting or they were putting 600,000 into lighting in the downtown. But the other issue, Patty, is, I mean, like, we're, we're just right up from downtown. Like, uh, you know, if, if you're pushing people that are problematic out of the downtown, then they're coming up here. So it, it hasn't solved the problem. It's just moved it. And that's what we've done for, what, 10 years. We've seen the problems move around and just shift. Uh, and unfortunately, our neighborhood has, I think suffered quite a bit in terms of uh, like it's it it almost feels like it's being ghettoized in a lot of ways. Um, for example, we're, you know we I'm seeing landlords who are I know are receiving much higher than market rent to house people who just aren't difficult to house, whether they're part of the you know involved in the justice system or whether uh, they've uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure all of the situations that make them hard to house, but they're, some of them are ending up here. I'm sure other neighborhoods, other folks in, in St. John's and surrounding areas are experiencing this as well. And I think that this shows that there's a lack of housing and specifically a lack of um, supervised housing. Uh, I I, you know, when I'm, I'm hearing from folks in the neighborhood who are being threatened, uh, we're seeing um, housing takeovers, which we, you and I have talked about as well. Um, so organized crime comes in and finds a person who's difficult to house, um, who, who would be vulnerable, perhaps, and says, hey, we're going to sell out of your house and we're going to give you some extra money or, or drugs or whatever. Uh, to do that. Um, and we experienced that here a couple doors down for me, and it was really, really difficult to to fix the problem. It's an interesting point you make about housing because, and I'm guilty of this sometimes, I try to be mindful of it, because when we just use the tag affordable housing, it's as if it's a one-size-fits-all to deal with everybody's housing needs, when it's just not that simple. So you use the phrase uh, supervised housing, which is a thing. You know, again, a lot of this comes back to we react once a neighborhood becomes dangerous, like yours is. We react after things that have been years in the making have uh, reached ahead in the downtown core, and we do this type of stuff. So I'm not trying to simplify to the point where if you deal with uh, the housing takeovers or if you deal with the prevalence of these synthetic drugs which are turning people into zombies, doing things they would have never done in their uh, right mind moments, 
and or mental health related matters. But, you know, these are the things where we just sometimes say, well, we can only do one thing at a time when there's probably six or seven components to how we address these issues, whether it be with uh, drugs, whether it be with mental health, whether it be with housing, whether it be with cops, whether it be with lighting, whether it be with cleaning the place up, whether it be with sharing responsibility for how we arrived at this moment in time, but we don't do it. You know, we say, well, we can do this and give it a shot and see if it works. Well, we know full well that you've got to do things concurrently if we're really going to make positive change. Absolutely. Like, uh, trust me, this is a, this is a very complex issue. And it's, you know, I, I've been on Twitter quite a bit talking about this stuff and I think that, Teddy, I think people just don't understand what is going on. If you live, you know, a few blocks away, um, you might not see what's going on right at, you know, Livingstone Carter's Hill, for instance. Yep. Um, you just, people just have no idea the, the kind of things that are happening. Like, like I woke up five, five weeks ago and four guys jumped out of a car and started started beating somebody with bats and pepper spray. Um, there was a sword. The RNC stopped somebody with a sword on the street um, a week or two after that. It's, it's, very, it's very hard to imagine the issues that are ongoing in this neighborhood when you live in Halley Estates or, you know, if you live uh, even in Cowan Heights. I, I'm not sure it's the same. Um, so I think... You know, even within, like, we've got to be able to thread that needle. Um, we have to be able to understand the issues and be able to work towards preventative solutions. And I'm nervous that that's not happening. Uh, and I'm doing everything I possibly can to ensure that that does happen. Um, you know, even, uh, I, I, I think the language is really important. I was corrected on the weekend. I said, you know, there are scary people here. And somebody said, it's not scary people that stigmatizes people. It's scary situations. Uh, and, uh, you know, so there's, there's that side. There's also the other side that, that I get responses from folks that are saying zero tolerance, put everybody in jail. And, and nobody, I don't think, you know, we've evolved a lot over the years in this neighborhood. We've got a number of different things going on. And I think that we recognize that there are people that are very vulnerable and are not necessarily doing doing the things that they want to do in life that perhaps there's there are control issues people are um you know specifically the survival sex trade is something that i don't think that uh people always have the the uh autonomy to be able to make the choices that they want um the addictions and mental health are all part of that. But what, what we do need and what we've been working towards and what I've been working specifically very hard towards is reinstating a, a working group that we did have going last year um, in order to, to fix some of these issues. And this working group, you know, included CSSD folks, mental health, addictions, um, justice, public safety, RMC. This was headed by Angela from Thrive. And my feeling is that is a way forward. Unfortunately, we're, we're still trying to sort of convince folks that this needs to be done and needs to be reinstated. And it's difficult. Um, so I'm, we've, we've reached out. We're going to do a little tour for some of these folks in the area uh, just to show some of the issues. 
And I'm going to, unfortunately, I'm going to have to reach out. Uh, you know, I spoke with the public safety minister last week and he said, you know, you need to reach out to the ministers in order to ensure that people participate in this. So I'll be doing that this week, um, as well as I'll be uh, re, you know, I guess like reissuing that hope that the RMC involve themselves in preventative uh, safety measures for this area as well. And my last, the, the last thing that I want to talk about is the city of St. John's. And, you know, I've, I, I sent an email to all of council and I've, that was the end of May. I still haven't heard from anybody but Sheila O'Leary. And Sheila has been very strong in supporting what's going on in this neighborhood and supporting the folks that live here. But I haven't heard from anybody. And I'm worried that, Patty, that, that the city is just not responding to some of the neighbors, the neighborhoods in, in, this, in the city itself. Uh, the Uber, like, yes, we need Uber. We need, we need, public, we need uh, public transportation. You know, from the downtown specifically, we do need to have people get out of the downtown, whether that's, and safely, whether that's in a taxi or in an Uber or in a bus, we need that to happen. Um, but it irks me that the city is willing to change the bylaws to allow Uber and rideshare companies here and is not willing to do that to provide something like nuisance lighting, which is something that the outer battery was was keen on having to prevent some of the issues there. So I'm that the overarching issue is wh- where is the city in this? Where are they? Where are they and why are they not responding to the citizens of the city? I appreciate the time. Interesting point you make about, you know, if it's not your neighborhood, that might not be on your radar, might not be a priority for you. But in fact, public safety, regardless if it's a dangerous neighborhood around Livingstone or anywhere else, is a societal issue. It doesn't matter if you live there or not. And I can tell you in no uncertain terms, Mark, you might be one of the few voices willing to speak up publicly, but I have residents of your neighborhood who send me emails begging me to keep their name out of it for fear of repercussions. And I completely understand that. You know, there's this one, actually, I shouldn't describe the family, that might give it away. But they don't want anything to do with this in the public sphere, but they feel exactly like you do. But sometimes political motivation comes with strength in numbers. If there was a loud, raucous, multi-voiced presentation coming from, or commentary coming from your neighbor or anywhere else, then maybe, just maybe, there'd be more political will to do something. Because that's unfortunately how things work far too often than not. Uh, Last word to you very quickly, Mark, before I have to get to the news. I mean, listen, since 2011 I've worked in politics, I totally understand that how it works. Um, we are meeting with our MHA Jim Din this week. Um, we're hoping that that he'll be able to reinforce some of the issues to some of the ministers that need need to hear it and need to act. Um, these are complex issues, but we have to start somewhere. And after working on this for ten years, it's it's really anxiety inducing, to be honest, Patty, to to think that we're not getting anywhere and that people are dropping out of the conversation while it's getting worse and worse and worse. I appreciate the time, Mark. Stay in touch. Thanks, Patty. It's always great to talk to you, and I really appreciate you uh, taking time to to listen to our issues. Happy to do it. Talk to you again soon. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, Yeah, some of those neighborhoods are wildly out of control. I've taken a little view from the outside looking in, and 
it does present like I mean when I hear from families that say they scoot in and out of there to their vehicle and out of the neighborhood and they get out of the car and they run to their house because they're afraid to just even walk around and enjoy the outdoors and the green spaces in a neighborhood it's really terrible stuff okay let's take a break for the newscast when we come back Robert you're there in the queue we're out we appreciate your patience we'll get to you after this join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels newsmakers weather and more join us on your VOCM at noon welcome back to the show let's go to line number two Robert you're on the air yes hello Petty thanks very much Uh, I'm gonna uh, give you a thanks for helping me out last winter some guy came out and shoveled me out during the winter a good Samaritan and the reason the reason I'm calling I'm an amateur musician inquiring about uh, getting a song recorded that I wrote uh, a while ago and I was wondering is there anybody out there that can lead me on to uh, some kind of production company down to in the United States and try to get my song recorded. Why the United States? Why not someone locally? Uh, I'm working at that too. Okay, because there's tons of music producers right here in the province. Yeah, I know. I'm working on that. I've been working on that a month and a half. I won't go into that, but uh, I was wondering if there's anybody out there, American, that is visiting here that has any access to any... Uh, recording production company down in the United States. I'd like to get in contact and see uh, how far it goes. I certainly wouldn't commit one person or another, but what's that fellow's name who uh, bought the church out in... It's not Trinity, is it? Uh, A music producer? He's a Grammy Award winner, so I don't know if he's the kind of person you're looking for, but I have one contact who might know someone uh, on this front. So what's your song about? Uh, Well, it's it's a message. Uh, about what's going on in the world today, and I won't elaborate on it. But uh, can you uh, probably, when we get off here, you can give me that number that that person you were talking out around the bay somewhere? Oh, I'll I'll call the person on your behalf. I'm not going to give out his personal coordinates, but I can make a call for you. Okay, great. So, it, well, uh, I'll wait for you or somebody from the station to call me back and give me some information. Have you ever done anything like this before? Uh, I've been writing songs uh, mostly all my life, but I never ever wanted it. I never ever, you know, pursued it. But I got a song here written now that I, I, I think it's it's pretty good. Okay. Fair enough. If we can connect you with someone, we're happy to do it. Thanks very much, Patty. No problem. You got my number there, right? Yeah. Uh, I won't put that over the phone. Over the yeah. No, I got table. it. Okay. Thanks very much. No problem. Take care. Good luck. Bye-bye. All right. Get a producer. Big American. Okay. And so, of course, just uh, prompts me to remind myself that, you know, sometimes it comes across as not really important or people question why we're doing X, Y, or Z when we label a year or something like come home year, for instance. And, of course, come home year last year wasn't simply about trying to give a bump to the tourism sector. It actually evolved into come home year incentives in the world of healthcare, but of course, 2024. Remember, there are years ago we were supposed to have something called Year of the Cod. <laughs> that didn't happen. But next year, with some investment and some heightened focus on the arts, it is indeed the Year of the Arts next year in 2024. Immediately, some people will scoff at it, whether it be about the possibility to build an, a medium-sized theater somewhere in the city of St. John's, you know, bigger than the LSPU Hall, but smaller than the Holy Heart of Mary Theater. 
which is part of the conversation. I think there's going to be some ongoing consultations with those who are already in that business. You know, whether it be Tara Holt and the renovations at the Majestic and or John Steele and his building of a theater. And yes, folks from Holy Heart and yes, folks from the, uh, the Arts Culture Center, Aiden Flynn or whoever might be involved in that conversation. So there's a lot to it. But immediately the reference is, well, the arts, why would the government focus in on the arts? But, you know, realistically speaking, especially when we talk about music, TV and film, it has become part of the economy. The return on the investment in the arts has been real. Some people don't want to hear that because they don't think it's true, but it really has been. Just look at the uptick in TV and film activity here. It's not just about tax credits. Is We actually have a professionally trained, experienced crew ready to go. So I know some people scoff at that, but you know the numbers out there about what return on investment looks like has been pretty substantial in the arts. Let's go to line number one. Jeff, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? Okay, thank you. How about you? Not too bad, thanks. Patty, I'm calling with a, with a question. Um, there's a, my uncle is, uh, was the executor of my grandfather's will, and there was a, a piece of ground that was left in the will that was supposed to be changed into my mother's name, um, and he refuses to probate the will, knowing full well that the piece of ground is uh, to be left to my mother. Um, now, we've called a few government offices, and they told me that there's nothing that can be done for this to be probated and the piece of ground to be put into my mother's name. Do you know anybody that I can contact to get this done? Yeah, you need a legal solution here, not a government intervention, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, so how would I go about that? Well, I, I give out this number uh, fairly frequently, and they have done some uh, clinics around the province regarding uh, wills and estates, and that's the Public Legal Information Association of NL, referred to, and the acronym is PLEAN. They've done this type of work before, so they might be able to give you some advice, and they actually do it for free as well, so it might be very helpful. Okay. Do you have a number for them? Sure, I do. Okay. Yeah. It's here in the city of St. John, so it's 722. 722. 26. 26. Perfect. God love you, Patty. Thank you so much. No problem. So they will give you some advice, or a lawyer referral service is also available at Plain, but it's a good place to start. Okay, perfect. Thanks so much, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, that's one of those groups that, you know, between Seniors NL and Plein, I give out those contact points uh, frequently. But they're the right folks to talk to, right, for legal advice or for seniors' issues or what have you. Also, when we had a call today already about the Department of Motor Vehicle, and that email address gets given out, oh, I'm going to say, certainly more than 100 times since I was first given it. And that's that real key email address for the registrar, MRD at gov.nl.ca. I'm sure they've uh, really been pleased with the fact that I got my hands on that email address. So, yeah. But the crowd of Plain, they have actually done this. They took the show on the road to do information sessions, I guess is a better way to put it, regarding uh, wills and estates and some legal uh, do's and don'ts and some advice for folks out there. And, you know, I wonder how many listeners have actually taken that next step to put their concerns and their belongings into a formal will. Now, you don't necessarily have to go to a lawyer unless you have some really complicated estate that needs the attention of a lawyer. There's some do-it-at-home stuff that's probably better than nothing at all. You know, if you don't have a joint account and they have two names on the mortgage and all these issues regarding custody of children or care of children, there's always going to be some outstanding issues that we might not give careful consideration to because maybe, like me, don't understand it enough to take care of it on my own. Okay, last break of the morning. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with you. Don't go away.
Welcome back to the show. Well, uh, we mentioned that part of that program that the government is calling the Year of the Arts in 2024 was the possibility to build a new theatre. And listener Bob reminded me that also part of that theatre landscape is the Reed Theatre, right there at Memorial University. Curiously, the government has said that is not part of the equation, that will not be any focus, that will not get any money for said renovation. And of course, at Memorial University, it would have to see some increase in the transfer dollar to the university if that was ever going to be entertained. But it looks like based on what government has said, is that the read remains out of the mix. For whatever reason, I don't quite understand. But on the front of Memorial University, we've seen a tumultuous year, to say the very least, at the school, whether it be about the strike, whether it be about the whopping big increase in tuition, and yes, issues surrounding former President Vianne Timmons. The outstanding question now is how they approach her replacement. Last time around, it cost about $150,000 to go through the so-called headhunters to come up with the president. And then, of course, there'll be questions surrounding what sort of due diligence or vetting was done to understand Dr. Timmons' background, whether it be concerns regarding indigenous status or what have you. And the thought is, is do we not have a quality candidate here that is born and raised in this province that can take the helm of Memorial University? Remember back before Gary Kachanowski, I think, was hired as the president, there was a local man, Eddie Campbell. And he was in the running, so we're told, and he held a senior position at the university. And when he didn't get the job, he was gobbled up by the University of New Brunswick to become their president and vice chancellor. Maybe an opportunity lost on that front. Not to say that Kachanowski didn't do a good job, because if I remember correctly, I seem to think he did. So the whole search for replacement for Vian Timmons continues. Neil Bose holds the position until they make a full-time hire. And then, of course, what probably grabbed more attention then any of the issues regarding the maintenance deficit over there or the explosion in the cost of tuition, which is still pretty uh, uh, cost comparable to other institutions of higher learning throughout Atlantic Canada, were still in good stead. But of course, remember, the issue that got the most attention and the most emotional reaction was taking the ode away from convocation ceremonies. Now, for some, that was an eye roller. I thought, are we really going to focus in on that? But for some, it was absolutely top of mind. When things have an emotional heartstring tug, they get attention, regardless if you think it's important or not. You know, and the comment that I made at the time, and I think I'm going to stand by it, is if it was talking about folks who felt excluded, some sort of remedy to ensure if that's going to be an important component and part of a leadership, whether it be through consultation or otherwise, is that adding to the ceremony versus uh, taking things away just kind of speaks to the actual definition of inclusion as opposed to, no, we're going to exclude one thing or another because it has some sort of colonial attitude associated with it. And then, of course, that conversation went to, well, you know, how about the troops and Memorial University? Of course, the naming of the school has a direct relationship to the Royal Newfoundland Regiment and the veterans. But, of course, the Ode to Newfoundland was written in 1903, well before any of the world wars. So I've never quite understood that argument in full. But I do get it when people get emotional about things like that happening. Because what the university says, and they admit this, is that the process they used was flawed in the first place. So if they thought they were going to have to have some consultation with various, as they say, stakeholders, then it might have been a good idea to do that before any final decision was made by a very small group of university leadership. Because that's how we understand it, is there was maybe seven people, including Dr. Timmons and other VPs, in a room, they made this decision. Now, we can argue about where this uh, actually came from, who made a formal complaint that made it its way all the way to the president's office. But when the university says, we probably should have followed an actual process before we made that type of decision, 
Probably so. And, you know, inside the world of tuition costs, I don't think anybody denies that access to affordable uh, higher education is absolutely important. You know, because part of our economic stability and bright economic future is directly linked with the caliber of education, not just at Mon, but throughout the entirety of the K-12 system. And on that front, look, we don't have to feel like we're ducking or dodging any of the controversial issues that are in any walk of life, whether it be in the economy or healthcare, or yes, in the K-12 system. And they've been tricky conversations to navigate, but that's the nature of the beast. Generally speaking, the trickiest of all conversations are the ones that we need to have the most for obvious reasons. So if that's something that you're interested in, regardless of the angle, let's do it. Let's go back to Ottawa here for a second before we run out of time this morning. The whole issue regarding foreign interference in our, the 2019 and 2021 elections, I thought would have got a whole lot of traction amongst the general public. It really does seem like it's more of the political theater, and only politicians seem to be talking about it, for the most part. You know I don't like generalizations, but... You know, even if we talk about the traction that it's got with our listeners and consequential callers, it's been minimal. We've had some calls. Of course we had. So whether it be about the selection of David Johnson in the first place, whether it be about his preliminary report and what we have led to understand as to what happened in 19 and 21, but the onus is on the government to clear the air as much as humanly possible. Now that we know that Mr. Johnson has stepped down as the special rapporteur, I don't know if anybody out there in their quote-unquote right mind is going to take that on. The scrutiny associated with that position is going to be unmanageable for most. And, you know, where's the legacy? Where's the upside for one individual or another to say, yeah, I'm going to do it, given what we just saw when David Johnson just went through? And as a result, the government plays this kind of funny. So when they say, Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs, Dominic LeBlanc says, a public inquiry is not only on the table, but was never taken off the table. When, in fact, if we're being honest, the Liberals were pretty clear that they had no patience for a public inquiry. If they did, then that was an option available to them before we went down this fancy title, special rapporteur path, because if they were ever going to call an inquiry, they've had ample time. And time is of the essence here. Even if you establish the terms of reference for an inquiry, which now the Conservatives and the NDP and the Bloc have joined forces to try to come up with what they think would be the appropriate terms of reference, even when that gets done, and even when you appoint a judge that everyone can agree on, because that's one of the caveats the Liberals have put forward, unless all hands agree on the terms of reference and all hands agree on the person who would be appointed the judge at the helm of a judicial inquiry, it won't happen. Now, it really does sound like herding cats for all of these different parties, with their thoughts of the matter, to be in line with this important matter. But again, once everything, all the ducks are put in a row, it's still going to take months and months and months to go through this type of inquiry. And I'm not so sure how much more information will be gleaned. Most of the classified documents that need to be understood are going to remain classified. They're not going to be broadcast for all hands to see, even though people want to be as informed as possible here. So by the time it comes around to the next election, and to put uh, further protocols in place, some things have been done. You know, whether it be with the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, ENSICOP, or the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency, which was established by Parliament in 17 and 19, respectively. So they knew that there was problems on that front. So some has been done. But even if we get down to the brass tacks of, let's just say hypothetically, that a judicial inquiry does happen, will the result and the final report and whatever adjustments need to be made to intelligence gathering, 
dissemination of intelligence, further protections to keep foreigners away, even though we can't pretend that this just happened for the very first time in 2019, because that's nonsensical, right? It really truly is. Foreign interference in elections comes in different forms and fashion, but it's been happening for quite a long time. And I wonder what people think of the fact that the conservatives in particular remain steadfast that we only need to concern ourselves with the Chinese, because there's some documentation about Chinese influence and seven liberal candidates and four conservative candidates were given some level of support, some level of money that would uh, help put them over the top to get elected. But if we go down the path of the money and the time of a judicial inquiry, would it not stand to reason that including all foreign bad actors who at whatever level, at whatever time in our history, whatever election, did noodle around some sort of unnecessary influence, whether that be the Russians or the Iranians, or the Americans, or whoever, why wouldn't they all be included in an inquiry? Because that's going to be a beast of a, of a matter, of our proceedings. All right, final check-in on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Our email address is openline at VOCM, uh, VOCM.com. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning, right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.